Hi, I'm David Temple, host of the Thriller Zone podcast. We officially have eight episodes in the can with episode nine releasing this Friday, the 13th that is, when we sit down with thriller writer Megan Collins, author of The Family Plot. Then next Friday, I have the awesome honor of hanging out with Don Bentley, the author-creator of the Matt Drake series, as well as the author of the Tom Clancy thriller Target Acquired, available now. Recently, I came up with an idea to offer some additional thriller entertainment to my listeners with a work of my own. Last year, I released the thriller The Poser, based upon my character, Hollywood detective Pat Norelli. And shortly after, I released the audiobook. And so beginning today, and for the remaining four Tuesdays of the month, I'm offering the audiobook in four 25-chapter-long sections. That means each audiobook portion is roughly two hours, making the entire book just under nine hours total. I'm calling these four episodes a Thriller Zone bonus podcast, and I hope you enjoy. So let's begin with the first 25 chapters of The Poser, starring rookie detective Pat Norelli. The Poser, written and narrated by David Temple. Copyright 2020, 82 Mercer Publishing. Chapter 1, Crimson Sheets. Standing over the bed, he watched the erratic burst from his lover's neck slowly subside. Leaning closer, he saw the light leave her eyes and froze the moment in his mind like a Polaroid. That's the last time. Reaching for a smartphone, he began posing her body like Hollywood starlets who graced past magazine covers. He took great pleasure in orchestrating his art, capturing images from numerous angles. Minutes later, he put away the smartphone in one jacket pocket and removed a folded letter from another, placing it in the center of a nearby writing desk. Taking out a pen, he placed it in her hand before returning it to the desk. Pleased, he began gathering his clothes. Suddenly, he heard a noise in frozen place, listening intently. On full alert, he slowly made his way down the hall. Thinking he heard another sound, he stopped. The only noise came from a splashing fountain next to the pool in the backyard. Cautious, he continued to creep down the long hallway to the rear of the house. Light from the moon cast long shadows on the marble floor, stopping. He scanned the room until his eyes landed on a door in the corner of the great room. It was open several inches. Approaching, and with quickening pulse, he stepped outside to scan the grounds. Nothing. Satisfied, but still on alert, he returned to the master, checking the hallway clock en route. It was 4.26, less than an hour to finish. Picking up his pace, he returned to the master, finished dressing, and thoroughly wiped down the entire suite. Next, he made his way to her home office, which was an adjacent control room lit by dim lights. On one wall was a bank of small screens, each one connected to a camera that monitored her property. The control panel clock read 444, two stops before home. Entering a password, he tapped a series of keys, erasing the computer's hard drive and shutting down the system. Satisfied, he turned off lights and quickly made his way to the kitchen, placing dishes in the dishwasher. As a final precaution, he took a vacuum from a closet and cleaned before passing through the house a final time. 
Wiping down everything he recalled touching, he was about to leave when a thought bubbled up. Her cell phone. He looked in the kitchen, dining room, and office. Frantic, he returned to the bedroom, scanning her writing desk, dresser, and bathroom. Checking his watch, it was 5.02. First light soon. Passing back through the house swiftly, he checked the bar, great room, and library. Nothing. Snapping his fingers, he recalled seeing her purse on the foyer table. Removing it, he swiped the screen. Locked. Clenching his jaw, he returned to the bedroom and placed it in front of her face. It opened. Technology works, dead or alive. Checking for certain photos, he erased them. Next, he looked for and erased several texts before returning to the bedroom for a final touch. Retrieving and placing the bloody razor in her hand, he wrapped her fingers around the handle. Next, he took a souvenir from his pocket, placed it in her other hand, and closed tightly. Looking at the bedside clock, it was 5.21. Climbing atop a chair, he took one last photo. When complete, he leaned over and whispered, Sweet dreams, love. Gathering his things and her remnants, he exited the back door and moved swiftly through the pool area before closing the gate and making his way down the driveway. At the end of the street, he spotted his rental. Reaching into his bag for the keys, he didn't see a speeding car rounding the hairpin curve behind him. Looking up at the last second, he was momentarily blinded by high beams and stumbled backwards as the car swerved to barely miss him. Watch where you're going, asshole! Downshifted into the next curve, a throaty roar and a blaring song punctuated the near miss before disappearing into the night. Chapter 2 Cold Case The night skies were smoke black, the air brittle dry. The tail end of the Santa Ana winds fooled you with its shifting currents, and the rustle of swaying palms seemed to whisper, Chill. It was late and the precinct unusually quiet tonight, especially given we were stationed in the center of Hollywood. Since my daughter was out with friends, the latest steady was now a memory and I suffered occasional insomnia, it felt like a good idea to take advantage of the time. I had spent little time working overnight since the academy, but was working to put a period at the end of a sad story. The bloody headline had faded nearly a decade ago, and I had been tasked with closing it for good. While finishing up paperwork, my mind flashed back to my days as a boot, working alongside my then-teacher and now-partner, Detective Stuart Brown, a veteran cop and a good man. He started in the graveyard, like everyone else, and was fond of saying it was a place to begin or end a career, depended upon whether you were a new uniform or your time had come. I was glad to be working in the daylight these days. Fortunately, fate had smiled on me, as someone on the ninth floor felt I showed promise, something about solid instincts and good chemistry. So I got a boost to detective third grade and was partnered with Brown. Moving from nights to days, we've been joined at the hip since. As much as I'd grown tired of the increased traffic, smog, homeless, and violence, it wasn't quite time to move on. Not yet. Besides, I was more than anxious to make my mark as detective first grade. I had spent enough time in the job to gain almost enough respect to be treated as an equal. I say almost because in the all-boys club of the LAPD, it was next to impossible to break through that ceiling. Besides, I was too stubborn to quit. Having a brother as a police captain and a father as circuit court judge, both had provided as much leg up as was possible without fully tipping the nepotism scale. 
Closing the file in front of me, I caught myself smiling, finally putting to sleep a cold case which had napped in Hollywood back alleys for half a decade. Lucky for me, the answer had been in sight. It just wasn't plain. It had involved a fresh-out-of-high-school wannabe named Rebecca Strong, who had come to Hollywood by way of Atlanta in search of fortune and fame in a town of glitz and glamour. According to sources, her career lasted all of 11 months. After dozens of acting classes and hundreds of commercial auditions, her sparkling smile but average talents were bashed, along with the back of her head. BFT, or blunt force trauma, had put her dreams to sleep for good. She had been attacked in the middle of the night in the middle of Hollywood, yet with no witnesses. Stewart had been this close to closing it before it was buried into the cold files. I just happened to stumble across a record of one of her old acting teachers, connecting him to an arrest that was linked to another unsolved case. Long story short, the tiny needle fell from the overwhelming haystack when I unraveled the case with reverse engineering, a technique I learned early in life from my father. Fresh eyes and dogged tenacity certainly helped. A loud cackle from the office room snapped me back, and checking my watch, I saw it was past midnight. Stretching a stiff back, I gathered my things as my tired eyes landed on a picture frame on the corner of my desk. The first photo was me graduating the academy. I was standing alongside my parents and brother Peter. It was about the same time my only sibling left Hollywood as sergeant to become captain in New York's first precinct. Judge Samuel P. Norelli had both arms around his two suits in blue and a hand on my mother's shoulder. In the second, I was holding my daughter Shay just minutes after she was born. I had purposely folded the photo where my ex-husband crowded the happy scene. The third photo showed Stuart and me the day I was promoted to detective. And the last photo was of my black lab Lucy, who I lost to cancer last summer. Heading for the door, I heard Officer Patrick, an African-American female officer, before I saw her. She had more bravado than most guys, I knew, and sounded in rare form tonight. Catching my eye, she shouted, What in the hell are you doing here on the weekend, Patty? <laughs> Closing cases, girl. And keeping an eye on rookies like you, Patty. Uh, be careful out there. I waved over my shoulder. She laughed, disappearing from sight. She was among the few I allowed to slang my given name. Few called me Patty. Only my parents called me Darcy. My boss used Patricia whenever he was serious, but most friends called me Pat. Everyone else, just Norelli. Chapter 3. Quiet Toast Passing through several beautiful and exclusive neighborhoods in the hills above Los Angeles, the man in black blended into the awakening traffic, halfway between the murder scene and his home. Miles away, and in a nondescript strip mall, he pulled up to a dumpster in the back. It was a procedure he had rehearsed earlier in the week. Double-checking for wandering eyes, he saw none. In fact, the only thing of note was a sign on the metal bin confirming pickup service in a couple of hours. He tossed any bloody evidence and cleaning supplies in the oversized bin, then quietly disappeared. Several blocks later, in another string of repetitive shops, he approached a Goodwill dumpster. Its large mouth seemed to yawn open, waiting to devour a deposit of tasty clothing. Thanks to the neighborhood's more than ample population of homeless, he was confident all clothing would disappear quickly and without a trace. Thanks to light traffic and familiar secondary roads, he would be home very shortly. 
Once home, he poured a drink, slid open a wall of glass, and approached the pool which clung to the side of a cliff. His eyes reflected the light shifting from night to day and savored a vintage scotch. Enjoying the machinations of his recent act, he replayed each step, meticulously analyzing the orchestrated chaos. Confident that all had gone exactly as planned, his shoulders finally relaxed. Staring into the Pacific, he inhaled the cool air, lifted his glass, and whispered, Cheers, Mom. Chapter 4. Crispy Start The next morning, I arrived at the precinct to a day warmer than most, and at a time later than usual. Fortunately, a strong cup of coffee had kick-started my brain, and while soft around the edges, because of fatigue, my head was entering the game. "'Morning, Detective Sunshine,' Detective Stuart Brown said as I entered the office. "'What's up, Sparky?' Looking at me, a frown creased his forehead. Dropping things on my desk, I looked down at myself, then up at him, taking an overly dramatic hand-on-hip stance. "'What is it?' He didn't even try to suppress a grin. Uh, "'Not to be rude, but why does it look like you've been up all night?' Stuart and I were close." brother's sister close. Whenever we spoke our mind, it was done from a place of love and highly unfiltered. Rolling my eyes, I smirked. Uh, because I have? Looking up, I found him still staring, so I took out a folder, raised an eyebrow, and a file on his desk, which had big red letters that read, closed. Now that's what I'm talking about, he grinned, leaning over for a high five. Slapping his hand, I said, somebody had to put a nail in it, making a gesture for mic drop. Copy that, and nice work, he toasted his mug to my paper cup just as our boss entered the room. Captain John Nelson had been with the LAPD for approaching 20 years and had recently hinted at retirement. He was the last of the old guard and still too sexist for his own good. He operated like most any police captain, played by the rules, didn't bend them, had a bigger bark than a bite, and genuinely enjoyed helping detectives better understand crime scene photos. What's the celebration all about? Nelson wasn't as angry or cantankerous as he appeared. We believe it was his way of ruling with an iron fist. Fact was, he was a pussycat underneath. Winking at Stewart, I said. Morning, Captain. Uh, Brown and I were just laughing at a joke. Go ahead and uh, share with Captain what you had uh, what had you choking on your Krispy Kreme, Stu. As Stewart's expression said, I'm going to get you. My eyes darted to the clock on the far wall. It was 9.20. Policy dictated we begin at 8.30. Captain preferred eight. Uh, could give a shit, Nelson said, looking me up and down. You're late, Norelli. And why does it look like you haven't slept, but did so in your clothes? Uh, good eye, sir. Actually, I was here late, but by the time... Can it, Norelli? He dismissed with a wave. Wanted to make sure you weren't sleeping one off in the parking lot again. The captain didn't drink and therefore had no real patience for drinkers. Besides impairing judgment, he felt it made people fat and lazy. And while I was known to tie one on every now and again, I tried to keep it under wraps. The captain liked to bark at me, but I think it was his way of, you know, looking out for me. Uh, there's been a murder or suicide. Hell, it's up in the air right now, but I do know the victim is a Meredith Johansson. Looks like she's an anchor on one of those uh, magazine tabloid shows. He sat on the corner of my desk and evidently a documentary filmmaker, too. He tapped the folder he was holding against his leg as though wondering what he was going to do with it. It's a freaking conundrum, if you ask me, he said, glancing around the room. Stuart and I eyeballed one another, and I leaned forward. 
Captain, let me have it. Us, I mean, I said, pointing back and forth between Stuart and myself. Con- conundrums right up our alley. He shook his head like it wasn't a good idea and scanned the room like he was looking for a better offer. Yeah, uh, about that. You still got a long way to go before... Captain, I said, waving for Stuart to hand me the closed file on his desk. As you'll see right here, I finally put this one in the vault. Signed, sealed, and I see that early thing is... He checked his watch. Uh, this one's... This is going to take some finesse, he said, looking at my wrinkled outfit. Mm, with all the pub on this one, Ninth Floor wants it, uh, <clears throat> how do I say this, handled fast and and quiet. Not sure why the push, but uh, but that's good, right? I mean, I, I, look, I wrapped this one quick. Well, okay, it took a couple of years, but once I got my hands on it, Norelli, he barked, waving me back like I was too close. Pump the brakes. I get it. You're on it. But like I said, this one's, well... It's high profile. Gonna get a lot of heat. Now Stuart stepped in. Boss, she's right. And uh, after she put her mind and our resources to it, the pieces fell into place pretty fast. The frown on Captain's face confused me. I wasn't sure if he was having a hard time seeing Stuart, hearing what we were saying, or making a decision. But he was still in front of me, and that was good enough. Look, Captain, I don't want to say I'm begging you, but... Come on, what's the girl got to do? He held up a hand. Whoa, 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 Nellie. We don't need anyone, least of all you, working that me too shit. Cocking my head to the side, I looked at him like, really? A rookie quickly entered the room. Sorry to interrupt, Captain, uh, detectives, but you've been summoned to... Not waiting for the rest, Captain waved the newbie aside and headed for the door, barking over his shoulder. Norelli, Brown, my office in ten. Chapter 5. Psychobabble. Nine minutes later, Stewart and I arrived at the captain's office only to have his secretary tell us he got sidetracked but shouldn't be long. Then I suddenly felt like I was in the principal's office. Stewart scanned headlines on his cell while my hands mindlessly fidgeted with a bottle opener attached to a key ring, a gift from a drinking buddy. I had a good view of the executive offices and saw Nelson through a partially open door. At attention, he was getting his ear chewed by Police Commissioner Christopher Miller, a boss whose tolerance for bullshit registered zero. I was reading over Stuart's shoulder when Captain Nelson entered and sat on the corner of his desk. Stretching his neck from side to side, it popped several times. Here's my challenge, Detective Norelli. There's some scuttlebutt going around from people who think you don't have what it takes to do your job. My stomach fluttered but my face remained neutral. Captain leaned forward, too close for my taste, and let out a deep sigh. His aftershave and coffee breath were fighting for fragrance domination. The aftershave was losing. Maybe it's because you like to dial it up a few notches on those, I don't know what they call them, two-for-one nights at the pub with your pals, or how you like to keep bankers' hours, all the rest of us grunts banging out according to regulations. He went to his credenza and poured a coffee from an old thermos. You do realize your co-workers know how your brother moved up the ranks so fast, right? Not waiting for an answer, he added, Word is they take issue with your similar advancement. I wasn't sure if his dramatic slurp was due to frustration, levity, or both. Me? I think it's just old baggage that keeps you from getting ahead. Sir? Maybe you're depressed or pissed. Hell, maybe you're overcompensating for something, some psycho babble. He stared into his coffee mug. So your husband left you for someone else. Well, he mocked. Shit happens. 
I started to speak, but his raised hand stopped me. A lot's expected of you, he looked into the folder. And such a high-profile case could be a game-changer. Ah, uh, could be a career-changer. Frowning, he looked from me to Stewart to the folder in front of him. Skimming the pink sheet, he half-mumbled, Uh, it doesn't make sense. This gal's on top of the world, just snagged the biggest trophy of her freaking life, was loved by the public, and what? Goes home to party with some friends and stare at her gold statue only to off herself sometime in the night? He rubbed his entire face like it itched. Yes, sir. Bizarre. Eyeballing me over the top of his cup, he took another slurp. Hell, could be a copycat. One of those strip killers years back, you know. Who knows? Doug Clark and Carol Bundy, a.k.a. the Sunset Strip Killers, were a whacked-out couple from the early 80s who traveled Hollywood, killing randomly. The legendary case had several inside the system wondering when a repeat performance might surface. Serial killers were often cyclical, and several inside the forest were betting sooner than later. To me, this just didn't feel right. Captain, I really, really want a chance to change the game. Sir, uh, let me lead this case. And if I don't solve it in the time you think is fair, hell, I won't go back to graveyard. I'll quit. Stuart looked at me like I just yelled fire as Captain's eyebrows raised. That's an interesting idea, he said, eyes darting between me and Stuart, then kept moving like I hadn't spoken. Or, I don't know, could be just a high-profile bimbo who got murdered for fucking the wrong studio exec. You know how this town is. for. Or maybe a nutcase killer with an axe to grind? Stuart finally spoke. Sir, you said homicide. Well, it seems so, he smoothed his tie. I'm thinking different. Makes little sense, I mumbled. Murder rarely does, Norelli. As much as I wanted to push, I waited and threw in some puppy dog eyes for effect. This was one of those opportunities that came along every once in a while that could do big things in moving a career forward. And I knew it. Stuart knew it. And Captain knew it. Plus the fact it was downgraded from murder to suicide, so quickly even, had my skin crawling. After an entirely too long of a pause, followed by an overly dramatic sigh, punctuated with a final slurp, Nelson spoke. All right, Norelli. All right. It's yours. Take the lead. But, Stuart, he tossed his chin at my partner, you watch her back every step of the freaking way. You got that? Yes, sir, he mock saluted as we stood. I took the folder from Nelson's hand, nodded, and was out the door when he shouted, Norelli! Spinning around, we returned to the doorway. I need you to close this, all right? Sooner than later, copy? We both said copy. Squinting, he said, Brown, go grab a coffee. She'll catch up in a second. Yes, sir. Nelson motioned to close the door. Listen, Norelli, I, I don't care what you do on your own time. What I do care about is how you perform your duties. Protect our community and that you at least attempt to show up on time. You don't want your co-workers saying shit behind your back like you're the teacher's pet, do you? I shook my head, and he stopped chewing the inside of his cheek. And do us both a favor and talk to someone. Sir? You know, professional. Someone you can dump your... You know. A therapist? You know the drill. Maybe go outside, off the books, draw less attention. On one hand, I was gobsmacked he was suggesting this. On the other, I guess I understood for any number of reasons. 
Yeah, I, I can do that. Whether I really needed one was anyone's guess. But if I could get this case and prove myself to my peers, my boss, and my father, especially myself, though, it would be so worth it. Hell, there are more shrinks per capita within five miles of here than just about anywhere else on Earth. After a long beat. Uh, have you been seeing one, sir? He swatted the air. Hell no. My wife, he barked, making a spinning gesture to the side of his head. Bats in the attic. Right. Not certifiable now. He looked ashamed for saying such. Just, uh, depressed. I'm doing this for your own good. Pull it together, okay? Yes, sir. Got it. Now get the hell out of here and show this precinct you've got the goods. Copy that, I said, opening the door to leave. Last thing, Darcy. There he goes with my first name. Uh, sir? I'm on your side. But, uh, how this ends up, it's all up to you. Chapter 6. Liquid Kitty. Driving to the crime scene, Stuart and I had been getting caught up on our personal lives when my cell phone rang. Detective Morelli. Detective? A voice I didn't recognize asked. Yeah, as in LAPD, who's this? Oh yeah, copy that. John Taggart. We met at the Liquid Kitty last Wednesday. Uh, you know, you gave me your number. Said call sometime. Frowning, I looked at Stuart. Uh-huh. Well, this is some time. What's up, pretty kitty? Listen, uh, John, is it? I'm kind of busy with little time for small talk, okay? You know, lots to do in little time, so... If you don't have anything more... Hey, you're the one who said give, a, give you a call, and as I recall, you were having all sorts of fun with me, had me believing we could, you know, turn that fun up an extra few notches after hours and such. Uh-huh. Couple of cops get together, pull out the cuffs. As hard as I was trying to place his voice, I really couldn't, although I do recall being at the kitty sometime back. Vaguely. You know, as much as you sound like a real charmer, John, I'm going to have to pass, okay? Whoa, looks like we have a snotty little bitch on our hands. Maybe I should have... Excuse me? You heard me, detective. Maybe underneath all that sex appeal is just a fun drunk. Screw you, Patty. Whatever, ass munch. Who was that? Nobody. I growled, feeling my armpit steam. As we stopped at a light, Stuart stared at a helicopter overhead, shaking his head like he was arguing with someone. I don't even remember the guy. Hell, I, I barely remember the place. Liquid King. Stuart gave me an odd look. Uh, not to push, but if you need, I've got a friend in the program. Could be... What? No! I'm fine. Really? I said, staring at traffic and wondering why everyone wants me to get my head checked all of a sudden. We turned onto Beverly Ridge Terrace and were approaching our destination when Stuart chirped the siren to grab the attention of a TV news videographer blocking the driveway. He gave us an eye. Approaching the impressive Bel Air mansion, I couldn't help but gawk. The house had to be 10,000 square and four garage bays, a, a pool and a cabana looks like a tennis court, an English flower garden that reminded me where I grew up in Pasadena. The area was taped off between two black and whites and a coroner's vehicle. Local TV and radio station bands sat along the ridge overlooking Franklin Canyon Reservoir. Hey, what's up, Jayco? I said to the chief medical examiner who was unloading her fan. What's up, girl? And my man, Stuart. 
Jackie Corazon had grown up in L.A. and was well known as a ball-breaking get-it-done M.E. She had the knowledge of a professor, the demeanor of a bouncer, and a stomach of steel. <laughs> She's the only person I knew who could slice open the belly of a dead body while eating a sandwich. As we made small talk, I scanned the gathering crowd. It was common for perps to circle back after committed a crime. The only odd thing I saw was a woman walking a tiny dog, her hair up in an old-fashioned sponge rollers, not something you see every day. The rollers, not the dog. What's it look like, Jackie? I asked. Heading toward the house, she looked over her shoulder and waved us to follow. As my Brit friends say, a bloody mess. We weaved through a handsomely appointed and immaculate home. It looked like something from a magazine. Enormous bouquets of fresh flowers added to the stunning decor. Several zigs and a couple of zags later, we entered an enormous and elegant master bedroom the size of a tennis court. Wow. Chapter 7. Panic Room Even dead, Meredith Johansson was beautiful, except that her throat had an open gash. Lying atop blood-soaked sheets, her body was twisted at the trunk and arms spread wide, as if to say, Ta-da! The amount of blood was disturbing. That's some trajectory, Stewart said, his eyes following a path of blood across the headboard. Yeah, arterial spray, either force or exertion, maybe both, Jackie said. And under extreme duress, could be yards, brother, not feet, she continued, aiming to device the length of the spray. Distance, laser... Saves a lot of time. Pointing to the device, Stewart said, May I? She spoke the numbers into her smartphone and handed it to him. What is it with boys and their toys? She grinned. Yeah, looks like he just discovered fire, I deadpanned. A forensic tech stood at a nearby writing desk and motioned for Jackie. She picked up the paper with rubber tongs and read it, then handed it to me. You'll want this. We read it and both frowned. With a cut like that? And a woman? Stewart added. Exactly, Jackie said, just as her phone rang. Hey, hang on, be right back. Getting much closer, I looked at the depth of the cut on her neck. I wasn't sure if it was the fact that I hadn't had enough breakfast or too much late-night wine, but my gut did a pretty decent somersault. I waved for Stuart to follow me out the French bedroom doors for some air. Overlooking the front lawn, Stuart flipped through his notepad while I watched the crowd. Do you think for one second... No, a woman? To herself? No effing way, I snapped. But why the rapid downshift from murder? I looked over my shoulder back to the room and shook my head. What is it? Stuart asked. Just to... I don't know. Stuart returned to scribbling something when I noticed a dark-skinned and beard man across the street. He seemed to be moving a little slow. And was taking a case from a van. The logo read Arcs Security. It's with an X. His overalls matched the color of the van, but oddly his shoes didn't match his outfit. He looked up, caught my eye, then swiftly made his way down the street. That's on. What is it? Stuart asked. Just uh, watching that guy, I said, turning to see Jackie heading back in. She waved for us to follow. Uh, what guy? And I looked back. He was gone. Uh, never mind. Back inside, Jackie observed the victim's limbs while Stuart checked the windows for entry and I took out my cell phone, drug a chair to the side of the bed, and waved to Stuart for help. What are you up to? Hold on, I said, taking several photos before stepping down. Pulling up Google, I typed a quick image search. Within seconds, I turned the phone toward him. Yeah, read the uh, caption there at the bottom. 
Uh-huh. Playboy magazine debuted in 1953, starring unknown Marilyn Monroe. Hugh Hefner published this as his first centerfold. He looked up at me and grinned. Nice pull. Additional crew entered. We stepped aside, and I continued to snoop through drawers while Stewart scanned books on a nearby bookshelf. I heard someone clear their throat behind me and turned to find a rookie named Chavez standing in the center of the room with a short, thick Hispanic woman. She was dressed in a maid's uniform, reminiscent of maids from the 50s. Her dark hair was pulled back, and she wore little to no makeup. I could tell by the size and condition of her hands that she had worked hard most of her life. Her eyes were teary, but she had a lovely, welcoming smile. Detectives, this is uh, Gabriela Flores, Miss Johansson's housekeeper. She found the victim this morning when she arrived for work. Thanks, officer. Uh, Miss Flores, my name is Detective Norelli. This is my partner, Detective Brown. She turned from the bloody scene, still fighting tears, a pink handkerchief clutched in one hand. Let's step into the living room, I said, taking her by the arm. Forcing a smile, she whispered, It's so sad. I just saw her Friday. Can you tell us, Miss Flores, what did you do the moment you arrived? And uh, when was that exactly? Stuart asked. Mm, 7.40 a.m., just like every day. And I get here every Monday through Friday between 7.30 and 8. And you hadn't touched anything, right? The door handle and, and the security paneled off to turn off the code. No, sorry. Um, that's what I usually do, but this time the little box didn't beep. It didn't beep? Usually when I show up, I unlock the door, come in, I hear a beep. That means the alarm has been set. Then I unset it with a code. Of course, I smiled. Which means Miss Johansson wasn't here, right? See. What time is she ordinarily gone? Miss Meredith is an early riser. She's gone by 6.30 every day. She tells... She told me she'd like to be at work before anyone else. Stuart and I looked at one another. Then he asked, Miss Flores, my colleagues and I noticed the home was spotless when we arrived. A nod and a faint smile. However, it's uh, Monday after a weekend, and I don't know about your family, but my home's a wreck on Mondays. Yes? What I'm getting at is your job starts at 740, and yet it looks as though, besides the bedroom, your job was already done. She looked confused, so I jumped in. I think what Detective Brown finds particularly strange is how this past weekend was a time of, you know, celebration. And we both imagined she would be partying with friends. But the home is spotless. Ah, yes, she smiled. That's something funny about Miss Johansson. She would clean the place before I arrived. Well, that's peculiar. Why do you think she did that? She told me she was too self-conscious to leave the place messy for any visitors. And I would tell her, it was my job, not hers. She was funny that way. We shared a smile. So I would show up. It would be clean, but my job was to clean this home, top to bottom, every Monday through Friday. Oh, gives no meaning to the word neatnik, Stuart mumbled. Flores whipped her head in his direction and said, Yes, that's what she used to call herself, a neatnik. Miss Flores, we're almost done. Uh, before you leave, can you tell us all your duties? 
Well, I vacuumed that entire house, including the garage. I washed the floors in the entryway, the kitchen, and the bathrooms. I dust the house, wash any laundry left for me, including bed linens. Miss Meredith wanted clean sheets every night. Um, I also washed the windows, but only on Friday. She entertained... Uh, entertained on weekends and wanted everything spotless. What about outside? Stuart asked. Turning to him, she said, She had me let the pool cleaner and yard keeper in at 8 a.m. That way we're all here at the same time. She liked to, she said, keep it in the family. Touching her arm, I asked, Um, keep it in the family? See, the pool man is my cousin, she smiled, and the yard man is my brother, she didn't have family, so she called us her family. I made a mental note to check into family members and saw Stuart writing the same thing in his notepad. He said, That's nice. Uh, family's important. Flores looked across the vast living room to where two men stood outside. Holding hats in their hands, they stared at the ground. They don't speak very good English. Stuart nodded to me, then asked, Miss Flores, can I ask you just one more question? See, do you know any secrets about Miss Johansson? You know, that no one else knows? Burrowing her brow, she pursed her lips. I knew where he was going, so I added some support. Miss Flores, it's safe to tell us anything you might know. This is a very important police matter. Anything, and I'm certain Miss Meredith would want you to help. Anything at all, Miss Flores. Maybe a, a secret hiding place? Well, she liked privacy, and security was... Muy importante, which is why there are four cameras. Stuart and I exchanged looks. Checking his notepad, he said, Uh, we only counted three. One at the front gate, the front door, and the back door. Where's the fourth? I asked. She pointed behind us. In the backyard. You seen that tall tree beside the pool? We made our way out to the patio area, and I instantly saw it. Looking back at the house, I could see how a camera in that location would allow for a wide shot of the entire back and sides of the house. One night when she was drinking a lot of wine, she told me she was scared of photographers and wanted to be able to see everything from her... Hmm. She stopped and frowned. Her what, Gabriella? What did she call it? Hmm. Oh, her panic room? That way she could see anyone coming. I eyeballed Stuart. Uh, where is this panic room, Miss Flores? I don't know. But you said you cleaned the whole house, Stuart pushed. Shaking her head, she said, She always told me she would take care of that room herself. Chapter 8. Hard Drive It took several sets of eyes, but Stuart and I and a forensic tech located the panic room. The entrance was located inside the master closet, hidden behind a wall of shoes. The clever entry point was a button hidden beneath the shelf. Once tripped, the wall sprung open several inches, allowing us to open it further. Inside, a soundproof but well-ventilated smaller room. It had no windows but a two-way mirror that looked into the master. There was also a single Murphy bed which folded into the wall, a nightstand with lamp, and a small fridge. We were standing in the grand foyer when Jackie came around the corner. Come on now, you two follow me. Snaking our way back, we joined her at the foot of the bed. 
she took Meredith's outstretched arm and opened her fist. Look familiar? In Meredith's hand was a miniature gold-colored Oscar statue. Nice find, Jackie, Stewart said. Crazy, right? She said, waving for a forensic photographer to shoot it before placing it in an evidence bag and handing it to me. Well, it certainly changes things. On the way back to the station, I continued to read about the famous Maryland photograph. The photographer was Tom Kelly. I knew I'd seen that picture before. So many photos had her lying on a red velvet background, I said, taking a pack of gum from the glove box. That shot launched Monroe's career and made Playboy a household name. Mm, quite the professor of porn, huh? Stuart grinned. Just curious is all. You see how... Or should I call you a porn historian? Yeah, as I was saying, look at the similarity between my shot and his. And? Not sure. L- let me see your notepad. He took it from his jacket. Please and thank you, I said, comparing his notes to the ones on my iPhone. How can you read this shit? You kiss your mama with that mouth? I ignored him with a mumble. Why the elaborate pose? Start with the obvious, he said, looking in every direction of the Beverly, Sunset, and Crescent intersection before pulling into traffic and passing the Beverly Hills Hotel. Anchor at the Hollywood Mole, documentary filmmaker, part-time actress, Meredith Johansson, 35. I tried to read a scribble off to the side. Not to be confused with Scarlett Johansson? Keep going, he grinned. Throat cut ear to ear, TOD between midnight and five, no forced entry, theft, sexual. Wait, why do you have misconduct in quotes? You heard Jackie say there were signs of sex, but likely nonviolent. I'm assuming consensual. Just a note to dig further. In depth, oh, I get it, snarky. When I mentioned to her blood in the carpet, she said she'd go back to scan the room with her crime scope. Make a good name for a TV show. I want to know if the killer was right or left-handed. Also, how about tire casts on the driveway? Pea gravel, he frowned. Well, it never hurts, I said, putting my spent gum into a wrapper. Ever seen such a hardcore neatnik? Not unless we're talking about you and your car. I slapped his arm. It's called pride of ownership, he nodded toward his pad. Yeah, right, I said, still trying to decipher his shorthand. What's this say about cameras and herd? Hard drive. I got a tech to boot up the computer and looked around the hard drives. All empty, blank, as in either a new computer, which it isn't, or new drives, which they aren't, or erased, I added, bingo. Finding the panic room was key, you think? Pretty clever way to hide your hideaway. Plus four main cameras to watch the house, front gate, security panel, front door, and overlooking the pool. I saw you looking at something else while I was chatting it up with Jackie. Yeah, I noticed two additional ones, he scanned his notes. One in a carbon monoxide detector in the garage and in the chandelier over her bed. How'd you, you know I love gadgets. I get the garage, but voyeurism at its best. We made it back to the station in good time, and while Stuart was taking an evidence box from the trunk, I answered my vibrating phone. What's up, Jackie? We found something after you left. Talk to me, I said, putting her on speaker. Meredith's cell phones. We found one under her mattress, just beneath her head, and a second was in a kitchen drawer. I stopped a second to process. Love to get our mitts on them. I'll ship them over, girl. And you owe me a beer, or three. Yeah, like that'll be a problem? 
As we headed down the hall, Stuart chimed in, Hey, Jackie, I see the hard drive for her monitoring system had been erased. Right? Yeah, with all the cameras, I'm sure we'll have a gold mine, probably on a loop every 24 or so. Well, that's for you detectives. I'm just a scientist. We thanked her and rang off. Unwrapping a candy bar, Stu said, Two phones, huh? Lots of people like to keep work and personal separate. I suppose. What do you make of the letter? I asked, holding up the Ziploc bag. Taking it, he read aloud, I simply can't take it anymore. The pressure, the politics, insecurity, the bullshit. I'm tired of phony friends, this phony town, and my phony boyfriend. <sighs> to my family, I'm sorry. Love, MJ. I don't know this person, but it certainly doesn't feel authentic. Yeah, you mean forced? He said, flipping through the notes. And the pose coincidental? Swiping the screen of my phone, I scanned photos. And since we don't believe in coincidences, let's take a look at the other goodies. Taking Meredith's laptop from the evidence box, Stewart said, Time we crack this puppy open. Chapter 9. Tight Box A dark-skinned man wearing a jumpsuit entered a handsome and well-appointed home. Setting down a tool chest, he picked up a remote from an oversized coffee table and pushed a single button. A piece of exotic art on the wall quietly moved aside, disappearing behind a thin panel over the fireplace and exposing an enormous flat-panel television. Clicking another button, the surround sound system bellowed headlines from a local television station. He adjusted the volume and began removing pieces of beard making his way down a long hallway toward the back of the house. The disguise was nearly gone by the time he turned on the shower. Minutes later, his damp hair was lighter than before. His eyes were bright blue instead of dark brown. And dress slacks and a press shirt replaced the jumpsuit. In the sleek living room, he divided his attention between local news and an encrypted iPad he had removed from a floor safe deftly camouflaged by a pattern of squares cut into the concrete floor. With no visible handle, it was operated by pressing a button, hidden under the lip of the fireplace mantle, making the floor door open pneumatically from below. The hidden space was roughly the size of a large trunk and contained a variety of electronics, money and several currencies, and an assortment of weapons. He took a seat and loaded a photo shoot onto an iPad. Pressing the remote, the television revealed his handiwork. He became aroused at the sight of Meredith. Even amidst the blood, he found her intoxicating. Moving his attention to an original Tom Kelly photograph of Marilyn Monroe on an opposite wall, he compared the two. Nice. An image on the television grabbed his attention. A news bulletin showed a view from a helicopter. He turned up the volume. All we know for now, again at approximately 7.30 this morning, a housekeeper arrived at this Beller home to find the owner, Meredith Johansson, documentary filmmaker and television host of the Hollywood Mole, dead in her home. Neighbors told Channel 8 she was a kind person, and as many in this community know, she was a humanitarian who served her community. The cause of death has yet to be confirmed, but initial evidence has led authorities to believe it could be suicide. We'll have more details. Muting the sound, his gaze returned to his recent artwork. Oh, she served many of us. Checking his watch, he shut down all the electronics, returned the iPad and camera to its secret place. Sliding on shoes on a jacket, he was in his car and down the road with little wasted motion. (laughs) 
Chapter 10 Dark Web The forensics lab at our precinct wasn't like what you saw in NCIS. It wasn't lit up all pretty with hip brick walls and shelves of super nifty new equipment. And the primary forensics scientist wasn't a sexy, smart-mouthed, and pigtailed gal named Abby. Instead, our lab was drab with boring concrete block walls and random shelves of not-so-nifty old equipment. And our forensic scientist, while somewhat sexy and sort of handsome, was a ball-headed guy named Oscar Gonzalez. Ozzy, for short. As we arrived, he was bent over a keyboard. He stared at a large monitor while sipping a green tea. What's up, Ozzy? Diagnostics, he said without looking up. His was a less is more vibe. Sounds fun, Stuart tried to engage. Necessary. Gonzalez was both bi-ethnic and bisexual. His father was Spanish, his mother Japanese. His partner was a Latin runway model, a good foot taller than him, which made for an odd yet comfortable combination. Ozzy, if you've got some time, we'd love to ask you a few questions, I said, making my way to a stack of materials labeled Johansson. Checking the clock, he said, lunchtime. Looking at one another, I shrugged and Stewart said, no, I'm buying. Sushi? Done. Twenty minutes later, we were sitting at the corner of a tiny and pristine space behind the Ark Cinema at Sunset in Ivor, named Fish, which said it all. With every sort you could imagine, 99% of the selections were raw. We each ordered a spicy tuna poke bowl and got to it. Ozzy, we've only just started, but several things have come to light that require our moving quickly. Ozzy lifted his face from his bowl. Why? Stuart jumped in. Ticking clock with a suspect who's twitchy. Plus, I'm due vacation. Ozzy's expression said, Uh-huh. Okay, shoot. We've discovered two hard drives on the victim's home security computers have been dumped. Ozzy shook his head. The cloud, pretty much SOP these days, he said, devouring more fish. Well, our hunch is that while the killer, I began, or possible suicide, Stewart interrupted. Not suicide. Ozzy raised his chopsticks and a deadpan expression. Yeah, we're pretty good on that assumption. Not assumption. Ozzy wiped his mouth and methodically placed his chopsticks on a napkin before turning to face us. A fact. Lateral cut, left to right, deep enough to cut the carotid, not just the jugular. Slice clean through the larynx and finished on the other side. Murder one, nothing else. Expressionless, he waited to be sure we got the message. So, what you're saying, Stewart said, drawing out the last word. Ozzy stopped him with a single finger in the air and a sip of tea. When he finished the sip, he continued the explanation. The cut was left to right, telling me she's right-handed. She couldn't make that cut unless she was ambidextrous, and I doubt that. Calluses on her left middle finger knuckle tells me that when she writes, and as a journalist she does, she bears down hard. There's also a faint tan line on her right wrist from her watch. Next, her muscle tone while showing me she was in yoga shape not weight training shape, says the depth of that cut took strength she didn't likely have. At least not the kind this particular cut would take. Third, the carotid makes you bleed out fast, not the jugular as most think. The fact she caught both the carotid and jugular on both sides tells me once again it was someone much stronger than her. And fourth, someone self-inducing. 
he emphasized with air quotes, wouldn't have a stamina to cut through their own larynx. Stewart and I both nodded without expression. My opinion? To kill her voice? His first expression? A grin. Yes, between the bruising on her forehead, right at her hairline, the fracture of the C5 vertebra, and the rupturing of the spinous process of the C4. English, Stuart smirked. Ozzy slid on his Zuri sandals and stood behind Stuart. May I? He asked, but without waiting for an answer, clamped down his left palm on Stuart's forehead, while slowly and simultaneously pulling it slightly to the left. Feel that right there, right here? He said, pressing a finger deep in the middle of Stuart's neck. Oh, yeah, I got it. Can you let go now? Sorry, but see how the left hand pulls the head back, fully exposing the neck? That move makes for a fracture of the fifth and rupture of the fourth vertebra. Because of the force, I said. Removing his sandals, he returned to his pokeball and nodded. Exactly. Back at the station, we flanked Ozzy at his desk, watching as he stacked photos of Meredith and placed them in an envelope. He handed it to me. That's yours. I have my own. Thanks. Stuart and I say in unison. We were heading out when I stopped and spun around. I almost forgot. About the cloud, do you think... No, no, I know. He instantly shook his head. She's a Mac user. Busy with no time. Needs order in her chaos. She'll have a backup. Well, all we need is her sign-in, Stuart said. Save your time. Ring McLeod. Chapter 11. Magic Cloud. When we arrived at Groundwork Coffee on Sunset, less than two blocks away, we spotted Stan in the back corner talking to a server. He waved, held up two fingers, and mouthed, two minutes. I gave a thumbs up, and Stuart headed toward the order line. Stan McClintock, a.k.a. McLeod, was a hacker with an obsession for information retrieval. His specialty, hacking cloud-based services. Legal? Not exactly. Necessary? For us, yeah. Standing in line, I said, We need to do more business in our backyard. Save all that drive time. No doubt. Should we pay him for this? Stuart eyeballed me. Doesn't he owe you something? He was referencing some under-the-radar work Stan had done for us a while back. We often called on him when backlogged in bureaucracy. On more than several occasions, he provided background checks where we drew blanks. Other times, he had unearthed nasty leads on something he called the dark web... Something I was aware of, but knew little about. True, I mumbled. But let's see if we can't sweeten the pot this time. Thoughts? I'll brew on it. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> he laughed like he was on stage at the Laugh Factory. I ignored him, looking instead for Stan's beckoning wave. Not yet. Stan's resemblance to Buddy Holly was uncanny. While he wore the same outfit, the signature sport coat, tie, and glasses, they were all black. One of the perks he told us in the past was the tips he made walking down Hollywood Boulevard. On a good day, he would sign two, maybe three dozen autographs for tourists before calling it a day. He called it coffee money, as he didn't like beer. I got the wave, while Stuart got the coffee. What's up, Detective Norelli? Besides, beautiful as always, Stan said, holding the back of the chair for me. So polite, Mr. Holly, but... You can save that for the tourists. We've got serious shit to cover, I said playfully, batting my eyelashes. You're hilarious, he said, opening a nondescript yet oversized laptop with a small box attached to the side that had a row of miniature flashing lights. He saw me checking out his hardware and said, 
heavily encrypted, and very secure personal Wi-Fi. Never trust coffee shops, he winked as Stuart joined us. Detective Brown, welcome to one of my many offices. Professor McClintock, welcome to one of our backyard playgrounds. Okay, what do you kids have for me? He said, rubbing his hands like they were cold. We spent the next several minutes volleying information back and forth, getting Stan up to speed with the investigation. He listened intently without expression. And when we were done and he had the big picture, I opened my backpack and handed him a hard drive and Meredith's cell phones. He plugged one phone into his computer and the hard drive into a small black box inside his metal briefcase. He tapped several dozen keys before taking a long, deep breath. Okay, I've got the website, he said looking at the phone. And my laptop is searching the cell phone. Now all I need are the passwords, he said looking us square in the face. Um, <laughs> I'm fussing with you. Pat, give me something. Someplace I can start. Looking at Stuart, he retrieved his notepad and I, my iPhone. All right, let's start with her name, address, birth date, and any pets. I started with the basics before Stuart filled in the rest with way more than I had expected. He had researched Meredith's parents' names, her pets' names, high school mascot, name of her college, as well as her astrological sign, social security number, and even her three-digit body dimensions. Holy shit, Sherlock! Nice work! Now, give me a minute, and if I can't crack this bad boy in the next 15 minutes, it's on me. Minutes later, he had a connection to her Mac account and was unlocking her phone. Turning his laptop in our direction, he said, Oh, we're in. How did you... Stuart began to say, but stopped. Uh, my friend, it's not that hard. People use the same passcode for pretty much everything, even their bank accounts. Insane. They hate memorizing codes, and worse, most people use a variation of that same passcode. I leaned forward. So, what's the passcode? The hard drive for her security computer is her street name capitalized along with her birth date in the standard six-digit configuration. So, let's see, Beverly Ridge, one word, with the first letter capitalized, plus 040484. And her phone, Stuart grinned. Well, that took a little longer because she put the numbers first, a slight rarity, followed by her cat's name, capitalized, plus the last four digits of her social, followed by the pound sign, which happens to be the single most popular symbol used. So, uh, let's see, 3926, capital B, Bogart, and pound sign. As Stuart and I grinned at one another, Stan said, according to those smiles, I'm guessing I could crack your phones right now. <laughs> we all laughed. Okay, what am I looking for? Stan asked, turning the laptop back and hitting dozens of keys at twice the speed I could think. Nearly an hour later, we were able to view all the contents of her business and personal phones. Both were nearly identical. Both were full of selfies, thousands of which included famous or very recognizable people and just as many appointments. While the calendar appeared to be duplicated across both phones, only the personal phone had a consistent two-letter code. On the business phone, nearly every day, including weekends, was littered with appointments, most of which followed a routine description. Name, title, time, and meeting place. The personal phone had pictures of who I assumed were close friends and family. The business phone was clearly work, with several trailers for her documentary film, along with several dozen amateur interviews. 
The calendar, with two letters in the corner of each day, ran for weeks. Has to be initials. With the case now being officially classified as murder, uh, things changed. The suicide note created a different tone to the case, and discovering the type of people who were associates would eventually provide good insight. Once we waded through the vast number of men with whom she had been involved over the past two years, we would know a lot more. Next came the video from the security system from her home. The good news was the service had been set up to record on a looped basis and stored everything in the cloud. The bad news, however, was while there would have been weeks of potential footage at our disposal, her account had lapsed last month after she had failed to renew it, which had happened the past two months in a row. We made a call but quickly learned the security company had given her a grace period twice before it canceled the service. I felt it was safe to assume with the pressure of the approaching Oscars, those details had undoubtedly slid through the cracks. Bottom line, the last 30 days were unrecorded. Worse, the last 48 hours, our most necessary, were nowhere to be found. The three of us sat in silence, staring at the screen. Well, shit. No doubt, Stuart added. On the bright side, Stan chimed in, you at least have the phones. True, and we were super lucky. One was right under the mattress. Why it was there is anyone's guess. Perhaps she was in the middle of something or someone before her date arrived. <laughs> Stan was smiling at the photo on the screen. Cute kitty. And exactly how I broke in so quickly. I mean, who puts a picture of a pet with the pet's name on the cover of their phone and not expect me to crack it? Stuart leaned into my face. Yeah, good thing I don't do that. Taking my phone from my purse, I swiped the screen and turned it towards Stan. It was my lab holding an oversized custom rawhide bone in her mouth with Lucy printed across it. <laughs> Let me guess, he smirked, taking out a pen and scribbling. L-U-C-Y, Stuart added, 102677. Well, shit, I blushed. Stan pocketed the pen, checked his watch, and slapped his thighs. Okay, gang, don't know about you, but I've got other clients to see. As Stan packed up, I stood up and said, I owe you. Save it, Pat. I want a handful of deposits in my favor bank before I make a big withdrawal. Chapter 12. The Conundrum. Circuit Court Judge Samuel Norelli paced his office, stopping every few moments to stare out the window at the City of Angels he helped build. He tried to recall how he had gotten into this sticky situation. In the closing months of tenure, his spotless reputation of honesty and integrity and for putting the worst of the worst behind bars was legendary. Now, in the eleventh hour, he was faced with heavy decisions and must make choices that will, win or lose, good or bad, decide if someone will live or die. Rubbing both temples, he shook his head, trying to will it away. Thoughts tormented him as he pictured what people would remember him for if things went south like so many dirty judges before him. His biggest fear was that his legacy would be one of corruption. Not on my watch, he whispered to no one, thinking, what choice do I have? I can beat this guy, he mumbled, feeling sweat form beneath his expensive suit. But will my family be destroyed? Staring at the phone on his desk, he considered whether or not to call his son, the other detective in the family. He had raised both children to be strict enforcers of the law, Patricia was strong, but Peter was stronger, perhaps even stronger than himself. 
Patricia had the best instinct he'd ever seen, but was impatient and often distracted. Peter, on the other hand, was extremely patient and had an uncanny power of focus. Pat had proven to be a good cop and on her way to becoming a really good detective. Peter had learned well, grew into the ranks quickly, and was destined to be one of the greats. Patricia could have the same success if she kept her eye on the ball, but to tell Peter that his father was in trouble would not only break his son's heart, but potentially shatter everything the father had taught him. On the other hand, he knew Patricia could find a way to help solve his problem, as she had a raw, savvy few embraced, and she was afraid of very little. His gaze left the phone and settled on a wall of photographs reflecting on past decades. He'd enjoyed the unique opportunity to meet movie stars, authors, and screenwriters, politicians, and world dignitaries while working alongside the best police men and women from across the country. Hmm. If these walls could talk. The judge had arrived especially early to get a head start on preparing for a robust roster of cases. It had been a busy month. The week had been busier, and today would prove to be particularly taxing. Yet now, in the quiet confines of the office, with a barely-touched chicken salad sandwich, he had neither the appetite nor the drive to face the oncoming storm several floors below. And all he could focus on was keeping his family safe. He reached for the phone, thinking he could check in on his wife of nearly 50 years. No, that might spook her. Daphne was a demure woman, full of grace and stamina. She had to be strong, raising two precocious, overachieving cops and married to a hard-nosed bulldog of a judge. Nothing much ruffled her feathers, and she had faced life with a fearless determination. That's what had kept her going all these years. Smiling, he admired a photograph that sat on the corner of his desk. It was taken at their 10th anniversary party. I'll fill her in tonight. When the phone intercom buzzed, he jumped. Yes? Judge, you've got a call on line two from a man who would only give his first name but said that you'd want to take it. The name? Frankie? His stomach dropped. He could feel his palms begin to sweat. Uh, Thanks, Evelyn. I'll take it. He had gotten a distressing call several days ago from one Frank Simoncini. Fat Frankie was the right-hand man to L.A.'s most notorious mobster, Nicholas Michelini, a.k.a. Nicky the Crusher. Together, both men had made Judge Norelli's life a living hell the past year. Nicky was about to do the long stretch in California's securest of prisons. However, an extremely valuable piece of evidence stood between his being put away for life and going free. Judge Norelli was the only person who could make that decision. And while Samuel was neither weak nor easily intimidated, Nicky could make or break a career, not to mention decide whether your family got erased from the face of the earth. Stewart glanced at the antique desktop clock. He was due in court at 2.30 and would need to head downstairs at 2.10. I can't avoid him. Taking a deep breath, he answered, Judge Norelli? No, hello? No, how are you? Aren't we still pals, Judge? Frankie Simoncini snorted. Hello and no. What's up, Frankie? The long silence made Samuel even more nervous. Uh, do you remember our little chat from last week? Of course. Well, you don't think I'd forgotten, do you? Frankie breathed heavily. No, but as you said, it's only been... Don't be a mook. You know what I'm saying. I figured I'd, you know, have to check in on you to see if you'd made time to, you know, start putting your plan of action together. The one to help my boss... You know, stay put with the ones he loves. 
Judge Norelli paused, knowing matters were in his control and would be put into motion soon. However, he wasn't sure when those pieces would actually fall into place. I've, uh, I've made some calls. I'm working on it. Uh-huh. Do you think I'd purposely put my family's life in danger if there were any way I could keep from doing so? A long silence. Judge, you're a smart man. Way smarter than me. But the biggest difference between you and me? The way we were brought up. You follow? I think so. You see, I was never afraid to get my hands dirty. I'm sure you never had to concern yourself with it, what with your impeccable reputation and all. But that's about to change real soon, because you're about to experience a whole new level of dirty. The judge, physically distanced from his enemy, for some reason felt more confident. Listen, Frankie, I don't need you to... Hello? The line went dead along with Samuel's hopes of buying any extra time. Chapter 13. Big Shift Back in the office, Stuart shuffled paperwork as I stared into space, pondering how it had become increasingly clear no one was buying suicide. Even with the perfect scene and requisite suicide note, it didn't feel like it fit her personality. And even with her obsession for cleanliness, the murder scene was way too clean. Would she have come home from the show, celebrated with friends, cleaned the house, and then said to herself, time to... Nursing a coffee, I stared at a map of the surrounding neighborhoods where Stuart and I had met many characters over the years. Hollywood was notorious for being a dark hole that swallowed souls. The volume of talentless people who geared up and failed, then gave in and bailed, far outnumbered those who actually achieved a shot at notoriety. In another neighborhood sat some of the richest real estate in all of Los Angeles. Beverly Hills' reputation for overpriced plastic surgeons and overhyped Tony restaurants was the stuff of legend. There was more synthetic reality inside a scant six square miles of semi-perfection than most any place on the planet. And with its own police and fire station, its own governing body, and a population of less than 35,000 people, the 90210 was a perfectly polished piece of municipality. The captain was right. More shrinks worked in this zip code than anywhere else. Hey, partner, what's up? Stewart said, coming up from behind without a sound. Oh, uh, captain thinks I could use some help, I said, dropping my head. Huh, don't we all? He said, propping his feet on the corner of a desk. So, uh, what's the plan? Suppressing embarrassment I felt from the captain's conversation, I considered how, as much as I enjoyed living my life large, I didn't like the idea of people talking behind my back, or thinking I was a lush who couldn't control her life. Just uh, considering options. Good for you, he smiled. As for the case, where do you want to go next? Uh, I say we see what's to learn about our Hollywood trinket. We were well on our way and knee-deep in traffic when Stu asked, So, partner, what's noodling on you? You've been quiet for a change. Mom and Dad are retiring, which means a move. Uh, my only child's disappearing. It's time for college. And that means I gotta move. Talking about seismic change. Yeah, right? But you like change. I guess, I said without looking at him. Making this big a shift is going to require some real estate assistance. I think I have the person. A realtor who sold my parents our current house? Patting my knee, Stuart whispered, You'll be fine. 
You always are. Call and settle your mind. He was right. So as we drove, I figured out not only how good it would be to see an old friend, but who better than to take me into my next chapter. I googled her number, then shot Shay a short text. Hi, daughter. Please plan on dinner with family. Spago at seven. Don't be late. Dialing Angie, I asked Stuart how long before we'd land at Meredith's workplace. Uh, 15, maybe 20 minutes, he said, checking the GPS. Angie answered, You're Beverly Hills realtor, Angie Myers. Let me find your next home. Now, that's a greeting. <laughs> Hi, Angie. This is Detective Patricia Norelli. My father... Pat, are you kidding me? How in the world are you? Oh, my God. I haven't seen you in entirely too long. What are you doing calling little old me? Her Dallas accent hadn't faded in all these years. Or maybe it had, and she just didn't bother to let it. We were in pretend land, after all. I'm good, and it's true. Been way too long, since I got married. And how is the good doctor? Well, therapist. Didn't really have the grades to be a doctor. And I don't know how he is, what with his younger, prettier girlfriend. I felt my BP climb and put the window down. Sorry, and never you mind. We can discuss that another time. What can I do to help you? Angie? I'm in the middle of a murder case and walking in to talk to the victim's boss, so I'll make it super fast. I'm all ears. I just learned Dad and Mom are moving, and my daughter will be graduating soon. Shay's already graduating? Holy moly. Here's the thing. When they move, we'll be moving too. Dad and I turned that three-car garage into a two, adding a, an apartment on top. That's where Shay and I have been living since I got divorced. Stuart tapped my leg, pointed ahead and mouthed, almost there. Angie and I dialed in a place to meet before my family dinner and rang off, as Stuart and I headed in to play our own episode of Good Cop, Bad Cop to the People of the Hollywood Mole. Chapter 14. Hollywood Mole The Hollywood Mole was a notoriously mid-to-lowbrow tabloid show with more credibility than TMZ, but less than Entertainment Tonight. We'd arrived within minutes of our appointment, and while waiting in the lobby, couldn't help but chuckle at the enormous byline on the wall, every minute counts. Personally, I thought they took themselves too seriously, as they were more tabloid and less news. Their reporters had model looks and had won awards, but as we quickly learned, many had less than admirable reputations. Julia King was the second in command, a.k.a. the gatekeeper, and moved about with an air like she owned the place. Greeting us in the enormous glass lobby, we made pleasantries, agreed to a speed tour to get a feeling of the heft of their organization, her words, not mine, then settled into her office. Meredith was a talented young woman, perhaps the most talented of our entire staff. Everyone on our team just simply loved her. The community loved her. She was an amazing person. Julia looked from me to Stuart to her desk, then out the window and back to me. Her body language said nervous, which wasn't unusual, just distracting. It took me a moment to understand her expressionless face. It was then I realized she was squeezing in covert peaks at a wall of television screens behind us. So what you're saying is the two of you didn't get along that well? Stuart nodded, knowing where I was going, and her furrowed brow told me we got her attention. What? I just said she was admired by everyone here. That includes me, she frowned. Oh, sorry, didn't catch that. I was counting on her next expression. 
Detective Norelli, I don't know what you're inferring, but let me assure you, she was a force to be reckoned with. In fact, I have it on good authority that had she lived, she would have soared to the top, perhaps courted by the big three. That smugness is tiring. Uh, Mrs. King, Miss, I'm not married. Big surprise, I thought. Right, Miss King, can you think of anyone who may have wanted Meredith dead? Absolutely not. As I said, everyone loved her. Stuart removed a pad and pen from his breast pocket, a move to either draw out questioning, intimidate interviewees, or scribble a note to me. My money on all three. Looking across the room at a wall of awards gave me a chance to see his note. You have quite a cachet of awards, Julia. Very impressive. He had written, competitive bitch. I tried not to laugh out loud. Thank you, she said, crossing the room to the display wall. I've been here a very long time, was one of the first reporters, and moved my way up the ladder, she said, pointing like a model on the prices right. Soon, I became a first-rate producer, then moved up as an EP. That's executive producer. Stuart and I nodded like matching bobbleheads. And when the chance came along to be VP, well, as you might imagine, I jumped on it. I'm sure you jumped on a lot of things to get ahead, I thought, but said, That's amazing, and in just a few short years, huh? Yes, actually... uh, Staring at me for long seconds, I couldn't tell if she was having a stroke or admiring my wit. Detective Norelli, I think we're done here. I'm much too busy to entertain your snobbery, she said, walking to the door. Goody, time to talk to someone who can actually help. I'm sorry, Julia, we completely understand. It must be something running a little studio like this, I said with a plastic smile. Miss King, thank you for your time, Stuart intercepted. We're sorry to have taken so much of it. Before we go, we need to speak with one of two of Meredith's co-workers. It would be a tremendous help. Can you do that for me? Looks like my boy's soft approach was exactly what we needed. Come this way, she snorted while taking his arm, then stepping in front of me. Oh, brother. Chapter 15. The Pits. Moving through a large room they called The Pits, we settled on two of Meredith's closest co-workers, Carrie Montgomery and Jessica Conrad. Between the photos plastered over their cubicles and the red eyelids, it was easy to see they missed their co-worker. We sequestered them in Meredith's office, which was twice the size of her co-workers' offices, and while it was not twenty paces from theirs, her retreat had a door, a window, which looked onto the studio floor below, and came with a couch, makeup room, and walk-in wardrobe closet. I'm just so sorry I was never able to catch her show. But with our schedules, they both nodded, smiling politely. Carrie and Jessica were smart, attractive women, both in their mid to late twenties and looked perfectly suited to replace Meredith. Judging from the enormous company photographs adorning two of the four walls in her office, I ventured to guess they saw themselves holding court in this very office, giving Ms. King a run for her money. I began seeing an all-girls club with several contestants. Or were they competitors? Carrie spoke first. She was like an older sister to me, always there with an answer, no no matter how busy she was. 
Yes, and she was always busy. I mean, besides hosting the 7 o'clock show, she co-hosted a weekend countdown show, volunteered several organizations, Jessica said, stopping to wipe her eyes and blow her nose. Sorry, take your time. Tell me, Carrie, were you working with her on the documentary? As the girls stared at one another, I bounced a tiny nod to Stuart. Detective Norelli, do you mind if I interrupt you for a moment? He asked, taking out his pad and pen. I have some notes and just want to be sure I'm saying the right things. Of course, Detective Brown. Jessica had gathered herself. Carrie was standing a little taller. Miss Montgomery, may I call you Carrie? Of course. Thank you, Carrie. Let me see, he said, flipping a page. According to Ms. King, uh, Meredith had just won an Oscar for, let's see, best documentary called The Other Hollywood Elite... Women in the wings, but not in the spotlight. Did I get that right? Yes. Meredith liked long titles. Yeah, it was like a trailer and a title, Jessica chuckled. Meredith was not a big fan of the mole. I mean, she liked it, Carrie said. But in my opinion, I think she felt better than us, you know? And then with winning an Oscar, well, let's just say we all doubted she'd stick around for very long. Between her human interest pieces and her documentary, I think she felt it was going to be the sort of material that got her into 60 minutes, Jessica said, turning to Carrie. Right? Pretty much, yeah. Oh, and you can bet, Carrie said, J.K. was not going to have that on her watch. Why's that? Stuart leaned in. Besides King being an outright bitch, Carrie spat. Jessica laughed. There's that. But more because King wanted so desperately to land a job with CBS. But they, well, where it is, they slammed the door in her face because she spent too much time working at a shit shack like this. As Carrie and Jessica fist bumped, Carrie checked her watch and looked at Jessica. Just then our attention shifted to across the room where a very tall and extremely muscular young man entered through the studio door with an attractive woman in tow. That's not what I said. If you were listening to me, he shouted. When the high volume of his voice clashed with the restrained level of our group, the disparity was obvious. He stopped abruptly, sized up Stuart, then myself, and quickly diverted our stairs heading in the opposite direction. The buxom blonde scurried behind like a lost puppy. As our two interviewees looked at one another, Jessica rolled her eyes and Carrie shook her head as they simultaneously said, Douchebag! I accidentally snorted. Not a fan, huh? You think? Carrie chimed. What's his deal? His deal? Carrie echoed. You mean besides being a DB? Someone you want to talk to, she grinned at Jessica. Yeah, right, Jessica said. He's the director of the show. That Meredith hosted? Yes, they said in unison. His name is Bobby Shapiro. His stepdad is Robert Shapiro. I looked at them expressionless. Of the CBS Evening News? Robert directed that show for something like 45 years before retiring, Carrie said. Since TV was black and white. Not like I was around for it, Jessica giggled. So son is following in dad's footsteps, I smiled. Kinda. His real dad was a, he's a fuck off. But he upgraded to a new dad and landed a better job, Carrie said. Stuart and I shared a glance before I said, ladies, just one more question and we're going to be on our way. Whatever you need, Carrie said without conviction. So here's what we know. And while I can't be super specific with the details, I can say her murder was not a nice one. The girls looked at one another and Carrie gasped. (gasps) 
Wait, I thought it was a suicide. Stuart jumped in. Let's just say that it's officially unofficial. Okay, ladies? This got a short nod and two long stares between the girls, and it appeared to be violent. Stuart said, it would also suggest malicious intent, which leads us to believe someone was against her, or perhaps didn't want her to see her succeed. He paused for reactions. Eyeballing one another, they remained silent. Yeah, there's also the possibility someone broke into her home, killed and robbed her, I said matter-of-factly. She was damn rich for someone her age and position, Jessica mumbled. I watched Carrie for reactions. Maybe someone didn't like what she was uncovering in her documentary, Carrie said, tossing her chin toward the door. Huh, you think so? I hadn't thought of that. Could be. There were people who didn't like that she was, well, shining a spotlight on. She looked to Jessica for support. People who didn't get the credit they deserved? Yeah, some Me Too shit, too. I had a pretty good idea where this was going. However, without anything more substantial, I was looking at two disgruntled girls who had reasons to get Meredith out of the picture, but doubt either had the balls to do anything about it, which is probably why they're on the outside of her office looking in rather than the other way around. Speaking of violence, Jessica said, looking at her shadow for approval, talk to Bobby. He and Meredith used to be a thing. Yeah, who wasn't? Carrie said, with that thug. For five minutes anyway, Jessica smirked. Gets around, huh? Yeah, he and Meredith were off and on. And on and off. Guy looks like a gym rat. Stuart went in for the push. You think he has a violent side, ladies? Our only exposure so far makes me think he's, uh, let's see. Bully, Jessica said. He is. Ass thinks he's a big shot, like he owns the place. Partly because of his dad. And partly because King wants so desperately to be at 60 Minutes. She can't stand it, Carrie said. Shit just got interesting. The room was oddly silent as though the cubicles were awaiting the next sentence. Within seconds, a flurry of noise wafted through the area. We went out once, Carrie said. I was all I needed. Why is that? They looked at one another, then in the direction we saw him last. When he drinks, like he does... A lot. He gets really mad. Like stupid mad. I waited. Evidently, Carrie liked being milked for information. Did he uh, hit you? Looking around, she gave a barely visible nod. Bingo. Looks like my partner and I may have another person to chat up, I said. Like you girls suggested. Leaning forward, Stuart said, Ladies, you've been very helpful. Let's do this. He handed them both a business card. If you have anything else that comes to mind, run into anyone who may be able to help, besides Mr. Bully over there, or want to share anything at all, please don't hesitate to call. They looked from his card to one another, nodded in unison, and put on an overdone smile. Okay. Carrie had the first look of fear on her face since we arrived. Um, so can you, like, maybe not mention what I just said now? You know... When you talk to Bobby? I know that look. Of course, I said, reaching to shake her hand. It's all on me. And our secret. Thanks, she said with a genuine smile. Stuart buttoned it. Uh, ladies, we'll see ourselves out. But if you think of or need anything, please don't hesitate to call either of us. Weaving our way through the serpentine cubicle hell, I looked at the faces of those working in the pit. Their eyes were glued to blue screens, no doubt searching the world for insipid fodder for their mindless show. 
Amazing, I whispered to Stuart. No shit. And Bobby? I say we... Just then he came barreling through another door, this time heading toward the front door. Speak of the devil, I said, tossing a phony smile at Julia King as we passed through the lobby. Standing between two young men, both holding clipboards and wearing the same outfit, her expression said, suck it. We made it out to the parking lot just as director boy backed out of a parking spot and peeled away. Damn it! No biggie, Stewart said, reaching for his pad and writing down R-D-Y-1-T-K-1. I felt sure my clueless expression said it all. Uh, that's director speak for ready one, take one. Clever. Yeah, whatever. Chapter 16. Slamming Pinks. Stuart and I had little time to get back to the station and look into this director who just skipped us. In or out, we did a snatch and grab at a greasy L.A. institution. Pink's was a side-of-the-road hot dog stand that made the best dogs around. Stuart never missed an opportunity to stop, no matter when he had eaten last. The last time I recalled supporting the habit was several months back after a late night of shots. It had been the perfect remedy. Now that hit the spot, Stuart said, failing to suppress a man-sized belch. More like bitch-slapped it, I said, waving away the double onion cloud of his Planet Hollywood dog belch. My phone vibrated with a text from Shay, telling me she couldn't make tonight's family dinner. I typed, Call me, please. Maneuvering traffic while digging through the console for breath mints, he said, What's up? <sighs> the daughter. I'm trying to dial in a dinner with my parents. She's not coming. See what you have to look forward to? Hmm. <clears throat> Not my girl. She'll do exactly as I say. <laughs> Good luck with that. After he stopped shaking his head, he said, Shit, I can't control my wife, a grown woman. What makes me think I can control a young girl? I caught myself smiling at his reality-dampened enthusiasm. Oh, you're in for a good long trip, buddy. She'll be your little girl. You'll do everything together. Then you'll blink one day and she'll hate you and want nothing more to do with you. But just be patient, she'll eventually come back around and act nearly human. We arrived at the precinct, parked around back, and was crossing the parking lot with my cell rang. It was Shay. I waved Stuart on. Hey, baby girl. Hi, Mom. Before you start climbing down my throat... Wait a second. I'm not going to climb down your throat. You're a big girl and can make your own decisions. Oh, thanks. If you aren't able to join us, so be it. But it's about the only time the four of us would be all together enjoying a nice meal, especially knowing that there's a significant change coming our way. And it's important for your grandparents to share it face-to-face -face with the both of us. Sure, I was pushing all the guilt buttons, but sometimes it was the only way I got her attention. What do you mean significant change? Granddad's heart acting up again? Dad suffered an occasional flutter. Doctors said it had to do with too much scotch and too little relief from the stress of his job. I don't know that much, but one thing about your granddad. Once he makes up his mind about something, there is no change in it. You know that. It's likely retirement, which means they'll be moving, and that tells me they'll want to liquidate assets to make the next place exactly what they want. What the hell? I could hear fear in her voice. I'd heard it throughout her childhood, especially after her father and I split. It usually came whenever big changes were in the wind. She'd always worked hard to appear independent and strong, but deep down, she was still my little girl, and I knew this was going to change things a great deal. Uh, honey, I have to run, but we'll talk more. Just know that you and I can make our own plans. 
Okay. And who knows, maybe it's all for the best. It won't be long before you'll be in college full-time and... Mom, I want to move out anyway to live at school, like everyone else. Strong emotion suddenly washed over me as her childhood flashed before my eyes. Where had all the time gone so quickly? Mom? I'm here. Weren't you just asking where we were going to live? Yeah, but I was more concerned about you. Besides, it just... It's a matter of time, right? And time for me to get into the right college. It it just makes sense, Ma. What school are you thinking? UCLA, School of Law. I know it's going to be expensive, but it's the best. Look, that's why I've been taking all these classes to get ahead. Besides, it will keep me in town close to you. Oh, she was working it, but she was also right. At least I'd stand a better chance of seeing her than if she moved away. I like that idea. The cost will be... I'm going to get a job, and maybe Daddy will... No. That deadbeat hasn't been there for us up until now. I'm not expecting him to surprise us with any grand gestures. Silence. Bug, I'll do everything possible to help. I know, Mom, and come on, with a 4.1 average? There are plenty of scholarships and grants. I'm sure we'll find something. You always were the smartest one in our bunch. And just so you know... Dad and I speak from time to time, settle, settle. Between therapy and real estate, he's doing pretty okay. If I recall, his front desk girl became his back room girl. I don't know about all that, but I do know you're both better off the way it is. As much as the reality stung, I knew it to be true. We were a mismatch from the get-go. My mind was trying to drift to better days when two squad cars lit up their sirens and tore out of the parking lot. What was that? No, just standing outside the station. Okay, look, so you'll come tonight, right, please? It'll be nice, Shay. Yes, Mother, I'll be there. Seven sharp, just like Granddad likes. Good. See you then. And, kid? Yeah? It's all going to work out. It always does. Chapter 17. Rap Sheet. I wasn't within a hundred feet of our office when Stuart's stink slapped me in the face. Oof, whether it was his size, the enormous amount he ordered, or how he sweated so much for one man, Stuart and Onions were a lethal combination. Entering the squad room, I passed Marjorie, the captain's secretary, and two rookies who had just joined the precinct, along with a man who was either homeless or a new undercover guy. They were all making faces like a dead body was nearby. Inside our office, I would have said they were right. Stewart spun around from his computer and grinned, just as Captain Nelson rounded the corner and shouted, What in the hell died in this office? With squinted eyes, he got in Stewart's face. It's got to be you, Brown. Swallowing the rest of his breath meant, he said, Yes, sir, I can't help it. Wife's got me eating so much. I don't give a wheelbarrow full of shit, which, by the way, smells better than your breath right now. Just tell me you have a suspect. Stewart stood, towering over the captain by a good six inches, and walked to the whiteboard, waving for the captain. Join me over here, sir. I think you'll like what we've accomplished so far. As the captain approached the board, Stewart looked at me, then nodded toward a folder on my desk. Inside was Bobby's rap sheet. Evidently, he had pulled it while I was on the phone. I quickly learned Shapiro had two assault and battery charges, a minor drug possession, and a concealed weapons charge. Okay, Captain, Stewart said, looking into my direction. Pat was largely responsible for finding this lead, so I'll, uh, I'll just turn it over to her. I joined them at the board. 
Well, I wouldn't say I was largely responsible, as Stewart has such a keen eye for detail, but here's what we have. I ran down Shapiro's sheet, sharing the charges. They weren't earth-shattering, but certainly gave us probable cause. The captain listened intently, chewing the inside of his mouth, scratching at his chin, and rolling back on his heels. At the conclusion, he told us to follow up because he didn't feel it was enough on how we needed to spend more time with the coroner. We had a meeting upstairs, so he wrapped by saying we needed to consider scouring the scene multiple times, then disappeared with a wave. That went better than expected, I said, making a ridiculous expression. Couldn't expect much from the drug charge since it was just a few ounces of pot in the first offense. And as much as I'd hoped the concealed weapons would do more, he somehow has a license to carry. It's just expired is all. I felt deflated. Tell me more about the A and the B. Bound to offer some probable cause, Stewart said, taking the file. Two charges of assault and battery, with one happening two years ago. A Lauren Carnegie of Brentwood suffered bruises on a sprained wrist. Second one was Rachel Woods, a model living in Santa Monica. I'll show him how fast a sprain can become a compound fracture, I said, feeling heat rise in my chest. Oh, I've seen your handiwork. Best watch himself, he winked. Looking at the clock across the room, I said, It's going to be too late to do that today, with a haul back across town and so close to drive time. We'll get to it tomorrow, he said, placing the folder in our to-do rack, then shoving another handful of Tic Tacs in his mouth. A few more couldn't hurt. Uh, you think? I was in the car and a mile down the road when I recalled telling Dad I would swing by. Ringing his office, his secretary answered, saying he was leaving shortly, but would wait if I could get there soon. My gut said go, so I told her I was just minutes away. Flipping on my concealed lights, I hit the gas and cranked the stereo. As Bruce belted out, born in the USA. Chapter 18. Twirly Balls Judge Samuel Norelli attended the best schools and received high grades thanks to a relentless study ethic. After school, he went off to the Army and in short order became known as a man who didn't take guff from anyone. His tenacity catapulted him to the highest ranks in record time. He ended up being one of the most decorated soldiers thanks in part to his respect for the men who led him. Immediately upon exiting the Army, Norelli landed one of the best jobs in law. The hours were long and thankless, but as a clerk and eventually a district attorney, his quick mind and dogged determination to be both stringent and sympathetic paid off. Displaying a natural acumen to spot the good guys from the bad proved him a worthy foe, especially in a city as corrupt as Los Angeles. And for 40 years, the good judge held his head high as he enjoyed a spotless record for honesty and justice. However, that impeccable record was about to be tested, and potentially tarnished. Staring out the window, he looked over Century City, rubbing his chin with one hand and twirling Japanese bounding balls in the other. The ornate gift from a visiting dignitary helped him relax. The tinkling sound within distracted his mind while balancing the orbs with his hands provided concentration. Fixated upon the ebb and flow of traffic several dozen floors below, he could feel a twinge of fear creep through the center of his belly. Judge Norelli, your daughter is here, his secretary said through the intercom. Uh, thank you. Send her in. He put away the bouting balls and went to a nearby mirror, straightened his tie, took a deep breath, and sprouted a smile. Showtime. Hi, Judge, I smiled, entering my father's office with a hug. I'm so happy you're here. Please have a seat, sweetheart. Crossing to the bar, he poured two glasses of 30-year-old scotch in lead crystal glasses, adding a splash of water. 
Over the years, I had watched my father interrogate brutal foes, bending them to the point of breaking. He could crush a man's spirit by the slam of a gavel, an act exercised on hundreds of occasions. And while he could be the kindest and most sympathetic man on the planet, he could likewise annihilate adversaries with equal ease, especially anyone who maneuvered outside the lines of justice. Suddenly, and for no reason, I felt like one of those saps. He handed me a drink. All right, what's on your mind? Can't I have a drink with my daughter? Sure, but it's kind of funny, don't you think? After small hesitation, he allowed a mischievous grin to spread across his face. What's that? I haven't been in your office in who knows how long, and I don't recall your once offering me a drink, especially during the workday. Leaning against his desk, his smile was as warm as the scotch sliding down my throat. Really? It's quitting time, huh? He said before his smile slowly dissolved and bright eyes darkened. All right. I'll cut to the chase. You're much too smart for bullshit. After a short sip, he set the glass down. A dash of courage before I ask you something. Now I set mine down. What is it, Dad? Darcy, you know how crucial it is to me for you to respect my position. Of course, and given you're starting this conversation with my first name makes me a little nervous. Right. But you know I wouldn't ask you for a favor unless it was supremely important. I nod. And you know there's nothing more important to me than my family, to be sure you are all always out of harm's way. For the love of Pete, Dad, spit it out. Spoken like a real Norelli. He pulled a chair next to me, patted my leg. Remember last year when Nicholas Michelini was in my courtroom? Nicky the Crusher? Uh, yeah, only one of the biggest cases of your career. Uh-huh. Uh, the biggest. As you'll recall, I sent him up to Pelican Bay State Prison on a laundry list of offenses. Racketeering, gambling, prostitution, pornography, drugs, you name it. Biggest mob boss in L.A.? In the country, actually. Set to do life. And given the jail is classified supermax, he'd never walk. Right? Except... He must... The heat began as a bubble in the center of my chest, the kind that appeared when I'm about to explode from anger or fear, or both. Why? You had all the evidence you needed, right? That's just it. I need that evidence to, how do I say this, not be had. We stared at one another for much too long for comfort. Not be had. <laughs> I'm... Pretty sure, Dad, that's the worst use of English I've ever heard you use. His smile was more nervous than genuine. Are you telling me that you need the evidence, too? I leaned forward and raised my eyebrows, leading him to finish the sentence. Disappear. Disappear, I whispered with a nod. My palms began to sweat, so I stood, feeling the need to pace. I suddenly had the feeling that inside the next several moments of my father and I might potentially enter territory we have never traversed. Uh, given I'm in homicide and what you're discussing is in a different division, except there were multiple homicides involved in this case. True, but I was not on the case, I said, hesitating just long enough for the quarter to drop. Patricia, Michelini's going to have me killed. That heat bubbling in my chest was working up to a slow boil. My vision narrowed as I blurted. What? If 
I don't make certain vital evidence disappear for good. Even with all the blood leaving my head, I managed to say, but he's already in prison and it, and it's public record. Honey, he's only been held temporarily awaiting his transfer. The case isn't a hundred percent closed yet. He leaned forward to place a hand on my knee. And his number one guy, Frankie Simoncini. Fat Frankie? Yeah, called to tell me he has an order from above that if things don't go their way, I can't believe what I was hearing. It gets worse. I think I'm going to faint. After a deep breath, he's not going to kill me first. He's going to kill me last. What? He slowly swallowed. I quickly inhaled. The hit will be on your mother first. My head was about to explode. Then Shay. Now I was having a hard time catching my breath. Oh my God, Dad! Then your brother Pete. I shook my head, trying to make it all disappear. Then you, and finally me. I think I'm going to vomit. Dad walked to the bar, poured a glass of water, and handed it to me. I'm sorry, honey. This isn't supposed to happen to people like us. No shit, Dad, I said, emptying the glass before rolling my neck from side to side. My father, the good judge, was the best example of all that was right and good in the judicial system. He'd always stood for justice and truth, yet here he was preparing to throw all of it out the window, tossing my integrity with it. Dad, this, this cannot be happening. It won't happen. We will find a way out. His smile said yes, but his eyes said no. A long silence passed before he said, Trust me, if there's a way, I know you and I will figure it out. It's just a matter of time. Speaking of, uh, how much do we have? His next two words crashed in my ears like a cymbal. One week. Oh, shit. For the next 20 minutes, we discussed a variety of plans which included heightened security for the entire family. We role-played, imagining all the best and worst-case scenarios, and we contemplated the long-term effects of our actions. There was the conundrum. We do the right thing, we die. We do the best thing, we live. One's legal, the other isn't. Guess we shouldn't have started with the booze, but frankly, I needed it. I could see the shame on his face, and I felt for him. But I also felt for me. This put me in a precarious position. Dad, I've got to run this past Stuart. He's got a good... No! He blurted so loudly I jumped. Sorry, hon. Uh, you cannot tell anyone. I could feel my world closing in. Dad, this is huge and won't solve itself. I I'm going to need my partner. Patricia, you understand the ramifications for both of us if we tell anyone else? Shaking his head, he began quietly. Look, I'll never forget what a pal of mine in the Bureau told me a long time ago. Sam, he said, if you ever want to get away with something, murder theft, whatever. There's only one way to do it. He said that 100% of the time, the secret was to tell no one, not a pal, not your lover, not your spouse, nobody. Oh, okay, got it. I'll have to take this to my grave. <laughs> Me too, Dad. To the grave. I'm going to need a bigger scotch. Chapter 19 don't look. 
After leaving Dad's office in shock, I envisioned the LAPD headquarters, a ten-story, half-million-square-foot facade, the epicenter of justice, a clandestine operation, and all in an organization for which I worked, made my head pound and my survivalist instincts shift into overdrive. I would have to come back to that, because at the moment, and given I was on that side of town, I had to make tracks to the coroner's office. It was at the corner of North Mission Road in Moringa Street, in the shadow of the L.A. County and USC Medical Center. As I arrived, Stewart was watching Jackie maneuver the naked and formerly beautiful Meredith Johansson. Seeing her on the stainless steel table with her chest cut open was unnerving. Jackie was cutting through her sternum with a tool that looked like my grandfather's head shears. In fact, the sound it created wasn't much different than his cutting thick branches from my grandmother's heirloom rose bushes. Watching an autopsy was like watching someone about to be hit by a car. You knew you shouldn't look, but you couldn't help it. And once again, I found myself staring as Jackie cut up either side of Meredith's ribcage to the breastplate, which included the sternum and ribs. They were no longer attached to the rest of the skeleton. In seconds, internal organs were exposed. Someone wants me to lose my lunch. On the other hand, Stuart had a steel gut like Jackie. Many summers ago, when my brother Pete was working the beat as a detective, and I was a boot just out of the academy, I saw my first stiff in the morgue. I arrived with my brother to find Stuart and Jackie standing over an overweight black man who had been shot multiple times. His lower gut had been blown apart, yet they were eating sandwiches and discussing what his life's diet must have been. I nearly lost it then, and I was this close to losing it now. Hey, Patty, come on in. Stuart's only been here a couple of minutes, but I thought I'd share some homework with you, too. I found it best to look in short spurts, thinking if I didn't stare, it may keep my last meal from landing on the floor. Jackie moved from one end of the table to the other, stopping to adjust the overhead microphone and speaking both technically and conversationally, perhaps in order to save time and energy. While it's evident her vagina and anus have been penetrated repeatedly, she's devoid of semen, there could have been some on her stomach. However, it appears she had a cream-based dish for dinner along with white wine. So between the sauce and alcohol, it's hard to get info on the cum. The only other specific thing I found was a blood blister inside her bottom lip, suggesting she may have been into biting her sexual partner. Stuart and I shared a shrug. She continued, There is bruising around the neck, specifically the base of her trachea, telling me she may have been into erotic asphyxiation. However, it's not pronounced. Uh, Jackie, could it have been from an earlier escapade? Absolutely. I can't fully judge the timing, but according to the bruising that... That would make sense. By the way, and for what it's worth, we're seeing more and more of this erotic choking shit. You know, I'm as kinky as the next gal, but the thought of having to do something that extreme just doesn't do it for me. To each their own, Jackie said. Also, found something else. What's that? Two things, actually. First, uh, yellow chips, she said, turning off the recorder and laying down her tool. Picking up a bag as she motioned me over. This is dental floss. Not a mystery. However, there are several tiny little chips of yellow. Not sure at the moment, but maybe paint. We're running it through Kim to, you know, check the makeup. I'm watching Stuart as he got entirely too close to the body. Hey, partner, what you think? He reacted like he was getting caught at snooping girly magazines and said, Uh, yeah, could be, I suppose. Not corn or squash. Jackie shook her head. No, uh-uh. Hard. Like uh, paint or wood. 
Snapping his fingers, he said, mm, mm-hmm. Old number two's probably Dixon or Ticonderoga. Good call. And the second one, imprints. Doesn't feel like a big thing, but kind of an odd one. Whoever the neatnik was, they missed brushing three small indentations in the carpet where they vacuumed. The dents were a few feet from the foot of the bed, guessing uh, tripod, which is nowhere to be found. Hmm. Whoever the cleaner was knew what they were doing. I'm almost done here, Pat, Jackie said, taking out a large saw. But you'll probably want to, you know, be somewhere else. Right. Thanks. I think we've got enough. I'll talk to you later, Jackie, Stewart said as we started for the door. Oh, one last thing. At the door, we turned back to her. Hey, guys. She was pregnant. Ten, maybe eleven weeks. Chapter 20. Pound it. Pulling up to the front entrance of the ten-pound bar, I felt self-conscious, partly because Beverly Hills made you feel that way, and partly because I wasn't pulling up in a Bentley or a Rolls. But then again, my new Camaro ZL1 was nothing to sneeze at. With a 650-horsepower, 6.2-liter supercharged Corvette V8 under the hood, the six-speed convertible was an eye-catcher. I had driven the same piece of shit forever until I cashed in my divorce settlement, treating myself to my dream car and my daughter to a good education. Another topic for tonight's agenda. Getting out of the car, I flashed a charming smile, working it like an informant. The valet, a kid who looked barely old enough to drive, flashed an equally handsome smile and matching physique. With one hand, he gave me a ticket, and with the other, took my hand to help me from the car like a real gentleman. The fragrance of expensive perfume and exotic flowers filled the entrance. The enormous containers of cascading flowers and immaculately dressed hosts were impressive. Making my way up the thickly carpeted sweeping staircase to the second floor, my eyes adjusted to the dim lighting of the paneled bar. The 10-pound bar was located on the second level of the Montage Hotel in the heart of Beverly Hills. The hotel had entrances on both Cannon and Beverly Drives and took most of the block just north of Wilshire Boulevard. To call the bar elegant would be an understatement. It welcomed true connoisseurs of the world's most precious whiskey, the Macallan Single Malt. Friends who drank with me knew I enjoyed a good scotch, a good bourbon, gin, or tequila. I was also a fan of red wine, and while I could enjoy a rare girly cocktail, but only on vacation, I also felt right at home with a good craft beer. All in all, if it wet my whistle, soften the pressure of the job, or killed the pain of broken relationships, it was my friend. My drink and date arrived at the same time. Darcy Patricia Norelli! Angie began looking me up and down like she wanted to lick me. Angie Myers, you look fantastic! Oh, shut the hell up, girl! You're the only one nobody can take their eyes off! Whatever! Sit your sweet ass down and let's get you a drink! Looking up at the waiter, Angie started to say something and stopped. I'll have a tequila sunrise, handsome man. An old-fashioned, I smiled. He flashed a Rembrandt smile and said, Coming right up, ladies. Angie watched his ass walk away before whispering, I could so hurt that boy. After getting caught up on old times with hearty laughs, we ordered a second cocktail and a small snack, then got down to business. We discussed how business had treated her very well over the years. She asked where I would like to live, and we settled on several nice neighborhoods all near the water, Malibu, Santa Monica, and Manhattan Beach. The first would have to be last because of cost. The second would have to be next because of availability, and the last became my first as it was in her wheelhouse. Well, I live in Manhattan Beach, and I love it. 
who doesn't love Manhattan Beach? I mean, just done, I'll never be able to. Stop it right there. I have just the place. I'm on the southern side. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, closest to Homosa Beach, right next door. Hmm. The place I'm thinking about is tucked up on a hill with a great view. It's not big, but certainly workable. In our remaining time, I learned Angie had been married and divorced three times. We recalled how the very first home she sold was to my father 30 years ago. The last thing on our chat list was the best. You can imagine I know all the general contractors in the South Bay, the guys who get the work done. In fact, hmm, one in particular, Steve Owens, is a GC with his own biz. Had a nasty divorce not that long ago. She got the house, he got the boat. And when he grew tired of L.A. traffic and Hollywood airheads, he told me now all he wants, besides building cool houses, was to spend his time surfing and living on his boat. And she stopped sipping and asked, And what? How is he? Winking, she said, Oh, he's handsome, all right. And as much as I'd like for him to toss me around his boat, I am just too old for that man. We laughed, and I waved for the waiter with a universal sign for check. No way in hell, little missy, Angie said, smacking my hand. It's my treat, for goodness sakes. Old friends who have been out of touch for much too long. And here's how I'm going to leave it, she said, whipping out a platinum card. My opinion about Steve, he's like most men. Wants low commitment and high entertainment value. Sounds like a dream come true to me. <laughs> well, that's a conversation for another time. Where are you headed now? I said, standing to leave. Girl, I get my head shrunk every Thursday. Lord knows that I've got some issues, she said as we made our way toward the hotel lobby. You know, I'm, I'm actually looking for a shrink myself. Really? Well, look no further. I'm serious, girl. Call my guy. Name's Dr. Darius Tercell. Has an office not far from here. He's a good listener. Has good insight. And bonus? Mm-hmm. He's easy on the eyes. Making our way down the curved staircase toward the entrance, she stopped, smiling at the doorman, then turned to me. Oh, side note, he's a little pricey, but you get what you pay for. Anyway, I'll text you his info. Just book a session. Trust me, you'll thank me. As her car arrived, she gave me a big hug. Oh, and the last thing, we think the doctor has a permanent girlfriend, which is good. Really? Why's that? Getting into her bends, she shot me her hundred-watt smile and said, Because it keeps all those single girls from climbing aboard his couch. Chapter 21. Spago Showdown. Arriving at Spago, I immediately spotted Dad and Mom across the restaurant. He was working the room, shaking hands like a politician. Speaking of which, he was laughing with the Honorable Mayor Lily Boss and her husband. Samuel and Daphne were one of the original power couples in Los Angeles, thanks to my father's reputation. Governor Jerry Brown had appointed him to the L.A. Superior Court over 40 years ago, and his profile had remained high ever since. The anxiety I felt earlier was somewhat diminished, but only because now, watching him schmooze, I realized his days in the spotlight were numbered. Soon he would disappear from view as new blood came into office. Retirement was going to be hard on him, that is, unless Mom decides his being around 24-7 might end their marriage. I was gawking at the ostentatious show of wealth by the 
who's who of celebrities when an extra-thin and ridiculously tall hostess approached. I couldn't help but stare if she had more plastic work than a Lego factory. May I help you? Yes, I said, motioning toward my parents. I'm, I'm with them. And I hesitated, looking around for Shay. Hi, Mom, came a voice from behind. As I spun around, I got a big hug. Hi, love bug, I said, hugging her and ignoring the hostess over my shoulder, who stood waiting for her next exhausting duty. Mm, I see the grandparents are working it, Shay said. Dad waved us over to a private table he had reserved in an adjacent alcove. It was a prime location with curtains for privacy, a fireplace for ambiance, and two personal waiters for excessiveness. Spago was everything you'd expect in a fine restaurant. Elegant, overpriced, and busy every night of the week. The most impressive element, besides a remarkable art collection, was the 30,000 bottle wine collection running the length of the main dining room. It was impressive in a died-and-gone-to-heaven sort of way. After copious kissing and hugging, the four of us sat and ordered drinks. And while Dad and I periodically exchanged glances, attempting pleasant smiles, we peppered our conversations with small talk. When the chatter lulled near the end of our first drink, Shay cut to the chase. So, Granddad, what's the big news? As he looked to Mom, I wasn't sure if he was searching for permission or support. Okay, um, good idea. First of all, thank you for joining us for dinner. I know your lives are demanding, so Shay, thank you for setting aside a school night to be with us. And Darcy, for taking time from your cases. Sure, Granddad, but <laughs> it's not like we don't see you, like from your backyard. <laughs> I know, but when's the last time we actually sat down to eat together? We all shrugged, knowing he would recall the exact date. Well, let's see, it was about three and a half months. We all decided on a day trip to Malibu. That's right, I believe it was... Your father and I are moving to Palm Springs, Mom interrupted, clearly excited about the change. Uh, actually, the Palm Desert, southeast of Palm Springs, love. That's cool, Granddad. When are you moving? Uh, soon, maybe a month or so, to coincide with my retirement. Won't you miss L.A.? And do you have a place picked out yet? Well, we'll miss being closer to you, but we've spent pretty much our entire lives here. Shay, it's called Bighorn, Mom said. It's a nice retirement community in the foothills of the Santa Rosa Mountains. Uh, that's right, uh, Palm Desert, and we're not exactly sure if that's the location, but uh, that's what we're looking at right now. Nice, Gramps. Your dig's big enough for me and a couple of girlfriends. Plenty of room for you, Shailene. Anytime you like. Dad checked on me with a look. I faked a smile. What is it, Darcy? Mom asked. I could feel heat rise in my chest and tried to understand why I was getting so rattled. I'm happy for you both. I mean, I think it'd be nice if we had more time to figure things out, but you know, it'll work. My parents looked at one another, like most do when trying to tell the kids they're getting a divorce. Darcy, you know we don't want to disrupt your busy life. Looking at her, I slowly shut off the sound of her voice. All I could think about, besides being uprooted, was, I'll have to talk to my new therapist about this. It'll all work out, Dad said. Look, I already think I need professional help. And you know you're welcome anytime, as your father just said to Shailene. It's not Shailene, it's Shay. By the stairs from nearby tables, I'd say my small sentence was big on volume. Shay looked at me like I had flashed the dining room. Sorry, I think I've had... Honey... Mom began. I held up a hand to stop her. Uh, excuse me just a minute. 
Mother watched daughter nearly sprint to the ladies' room, politely smiling to Shay and Samuel as she stood. Enjoy your drink, dear. We'll be back in a moment. After Daphne was out of earshot, Shay said, Well, that was interesting. Shay, does your mother know yet about your plans to move? Samuel smiled, patting her hand. Not exactly. I was going to tell her. Soon. You may want to sit on that a little while. You think? They both sipped their drinks. Samuel checked his watch. Shay checked her phone. After a long moment, he said, And have you told your mother about your... preference? Shay nearly spat her tea across the table. Uh, my what? Preference. You know what I'm saying. Shay could feel herself flush. When um, I mean, how did you know? Smiling, he took her hand. Shailene, I may know you better than my own daughter. And while not obvious, he winked. I just know. You're funny, granddad. I'm glad you think so, he smiled, patting her hand. And another thing? Yeah, you'll want to sit on that for a while. Yeah, I know. In the bathroom, I was leaning over, splashing water in my face, trying to sober up just enough to make it through dessert. And you think he's been doing what? I asked my mom, checking to see if anyone else was in the room. I don't know. Just the way he's been acting. Something's different, honey. I guess I've started to wonder, you know, if, if he's been seeing anyone. Mom! That's ridiculous. He loves you. Always has. Always will. Well, it's just he's been so distant. Working later and going in earlier. Mom, Dad is... <laughs> Dad is not having an affair. He's retiring. The look on my mother's face was priceless. That's when I realized she could be feeling as dislocated as we were. So I took her hands and said, Mother... He's just under a great deal of stress, what with his career winding down, and at the one place he's been for his entire professional career? You're right. I feel so silly. As she let go, I kissed her cheek. He's saying goodbye and preparing for that place called retirement, Mom. Trust your detective daughter. I know. I do. You're right. Oh, and honey... Yes, I said, making our way back to dinner. You and Shay will be fine. We returned to the dining room, complete with fresh lipstick and big smiles. When Dad squinted at me, I took a deep breath and pulled the biggest smile out of my ass. Mom said, Us girls got it all worked out. I'm sorry, you two, I said, and I'm happy for you both. Taking Shay's hand, I said, As for me and my little girl, we'll be fine. After all, we're BFFs, right, kiddo? Smiling, she looked to her grandparents, then slowly slid her hand away and took a sip before saying, Um, just one thing, Mom. Yes? I, uh, I really want to go to Stanford. I wasn't sure if my spinning head was the booze, the news, or both. What? Yeah, the law school. I thought you wanted to go to UCLA to save money and be closer. I know, Mom, but Grandpa said Stanford has one of the best law schools in the country. I looked to find him with a sheepish grin. I think it's time for your little girl to spread her wings, honey. It's, it's a good thing. I went there. Your mother went there. Hell, you should have gone there. And see where my law degree took me? 
The same could happen for Shay. I'll help open some doors and help in her first year. I've always told her I'd cover her first year, no matter where she wanted to go. Mom, that was when we were talking UCLA. Stanford's way more expensive. Look, what say I cover the second year? Dad interjected. I'd love to be a part of her education. It'll be the best thing for her. You'll see, Mom said. I caught my breath trying to keep my face from revealing any pain. Uh, that, that could work. I said to Dad before turning to Shay, maybe he's right, and if that's what you want, it's what I want. Her frown slowly grew into a smile. Now that calls for a celebration. Perfect. My home's breaking apart, Dad and I are scheming with a mafia, and my boss has me seeing a shrink. And the perfect time for some champagne, Dad said, waving to the staff. So, what to do in times like these? He raised his glass. Here's to my three girls and one perfect night. Bottoms up. Chapter 22. Triple Play. On my way to the office the next morning, I stopped to grab five shots and a splash of foam. I like to call it my crack in a cup. Driving down Sunset, I was feeling good about beating Stuart to work. Wind blew my hair, caffeine coursed my veins, and my mind raced back to last night. In the light of day, watching Dad share his news was laughable. And while I was probably too hard on him, it was only because I was going to miss living in the house where I'd spent a big part of my life. On top of that, learning Shay was going to leave me for the Bay Area nearly broke my heart. I hung a quick ride on La Cienega and scooted down to Santa Monica Boulevard, hoping to miss the construction of a new megastructure. Sitting at the Coanga Light, an idea hit me like a starburst. Why the Oscar statue? Because she was killed on Oscar night? The light cycled back to red. I exhaled deeply. A disgruntled actor who got shunned by the Academy? The light turned green, and I was off. Red herring or clue? I was still lost in thought when my familiar inner voice whispered, Think outside the box. Within minutes, I'd snagged a parking spot up front, was down the hall and walking into our office as I glanced at the clock above our desks. It was 7.20. Sweet Jesus, I'm more than an hour early. Dropping my things, I grabbed my favorite mug and headed to the break room. Just as I rounded the corner, there he was, sitting at a table, stuffing a fast food biscuit into his mouth. Are you kidding me? I shouted, ready to throw my coffee. Grinning from ear to ear and wiping greasy crumbs from his chin, Stewart said, mm, You gotta get up pretty early in the morning to beat your partner, detective. I was so sure I was gonna beat you, he laughed as I shook my head, crossing to put my coffee in the microwave. Opening the fridge, I looked for fruit, settled on a two-ripe banana, and at the ding, grabbed the cup, now hot enough to melt my gun, and returned to the office. Stuart followed behind. Um, sorry, DP. If I'd known it was going to piss you off, I'd drug my feet. <laughs> Wife certainly wouldn't have cared. Whatever, I mumbled, peeling the banana with my teeth. Uh, it's some dexterity you got there. Use it often? You know it. Come on, I want to show you something that it's going to cheer you up. At his desk, I hung over Stuart's shoulder, staring at the screen as he queued up a video on his computer. Considering the source, I was surprised at the graininess of the image. You'd think... Yeah, for a broadcast company, right? Here it is again. Watch these two coming out of the building. There's Bobby, Stuart explained, tapping a greasy finger on the screen. I handed him a napkin. All right, now watch that person next to him. And copy. <laughs> Whoa! 
What the? Right? Stewart said, stopping the video right after Bobby had smacked one of the women to the ground. The image was frozen, showing him in mid-swing as the woman was trying to get back up. That really pisses me off. Me too, partner. Whether or not he's our guy, we could use this video to accomplish other deeds. Nodding, I said. Any way to enhance that image? Not really, but look, he said, making the image progress just frames at a time. There's just enough light coming from the street lamp that the shadows are washed out. You remember the girls we met at the station? Carrie and Jessica? Right. Now think, he said, rewinding it a third time. Could be either one. Both about 5'5", five five, both some version of bottle blonde. Either one make you think of... He stopped the video just after the knock to the ground and before the arm swung for a second time. Seeing it again, it made me just as mad as the first time. If I get my hands on that fuckwad, he'll wish he never hit a girl. You tell him, dirty patty. I stood up straight, stretching. But you know who else it could just as easily be? Meredith. Here's something else I found, he said, reaching for a folder. He's been written up, let's see, not once or twice, but five times for sexual harassment. What? How can that douche get away with it? Isn't there a limit to... Pat. <laughs> it's part the system and part his position, or more accurately, his stepfather's prestige that got and keeps him in the director's seat. Pompous, entitled nutsack. Get this. He's dated nearly a third of the women in that network. You're joking me. Nah, yet they all still rat him out. You'd think if someone knew what an ass he was, they'd share it with their co-workers. <laughs> Baby, it's Holly weird, man. So many suck-up wannabes trying to get ahead. In more ways than one. Right, right. Uh, anything else? Hmm? Funny you should ask. Want to guess why he got fired from his last job? A low-rate show called Hot Gossip Tonight. Sexual harassment and drinking on the job. <laughs> what a screw up they managed to keep his drinking problem on the DL if he agreed to community service and get into a program according to this he's been clean and sober ever since I made a mental note to dig as I was pretty sure there was more muck stuck to this idiot shoe hey can I see that I want to do something before we head back to meet Mr. Personality sure he said tossing the file on my desk and returning to the video by the way where'd you get the video I don't actually have it as much as I have access to it. My frown said, what? A pal. Okay, somebody I play ball with on the weekend needed a favor. Parking ticket. I took care of it. And he said, if I ever needed the return, just ask. And then I remembered that conversation while watching a game last night. Yeah? So he works in the IT department at none other than... <laughs> nice luck, Stu. So I called to see if I could, you know, check any security footage from the weekend. He got all squirrely before saying he could give me a private login, but he couldn't officially let me see it, you know, without a court order, blah, blah, blah. And so you, exactly. The game was over. My girl was down for the count. So I logged into the cloud and started scouring footage from this past weekend. I started with Sunday, nothing. Watched Saturday, nothing. Keep in mind, it wasn't like you could shuttle at high speed, so by the time I hit Friday, I told myself, okay, just one more. Then about the time I was going to call it, boom. That's gold, dude. We'll have to get paper so we can snag it for future reference. Copy that. Tapping my fingers on the top of Shapiro's file, I grew a grin. Uh, what's that look mean? Just an idea about finding this clown's Achilles heel. 
his eyebrows raised. And then, stepping on it, he grinned, and I plopped into my chair, checking the clock. It was just after eight, and co-workers would be arriving soon. What? What do you mean, what? What, what? Watching your mental gymnastics? Where's your head? You mean besides my being here an hour already, which is about the time I usually drag in? <laughs> yeah, try another hour. Whatever. Three things got me chapped. Here we go. First, that pisses me off, I pointed at the computer. I want to jam my forty-five right up his ass. Okay, great. And two, I've got my first date today with, I look around and lowered my voice, a therapist, remember? Good idea, he nods. And three, I've got to find a place to live. Alone, I might add. What? I thought more later, but I've got 30 days to make something happen, starting now. Hmm, sounds like a full day. And that doesn't even include the last two things, I said, pulling my things together. What? You said three. That's personal shit. The last two are all business, he rolled his eyes. Track down the manufacturer of that Oscar statue? and pay a visit to Bobby Dushiru. All right. I'll meet you back here after your, he used air quotes, appointment. Chapter 23, Deep Dive. Dr. Darius Tercel sat at his desk, almost in a meditative state, contemplating his accomplishments. After spending his college years studying psychology, then doctoral work, which focused upon behavioral modification, his passions grew to include Dissociative Identity Disorder, previously known as Multiple Personality Disorder. He spent enough time in school to know several things with certainty. First, he was smarter than most of his colleagues. At exam time, he always finished first and never missed more than three answers. Second, his obsession with learning everything he could about the human mind was both impressive and unnerving. Impressive because he was referred to as Professor thanks to his photographic memory and near-encyclopedic knowledge base. A car horn honked outside, snapping him back to the moment. He checked his watch. Mm, ten minutes. Two manila folders were on his desk with labels that read Angie Myers and Patricia Norelli. Angie had been Tercel's patient for nearly a decade, long enough to get to know her, long enough for her to trust him, and long enough for both to learn from one another. Since Detective Norelli was referred by Angie, he would send Angie... A handwritten thank-you note. A personal touch he knew meant a great deal in a town like Beverly Hills. One had to work overtime to stand out from the rest of the pack. He scanned Angie's file. Thrice divorced and twice admitted to a center for substance abuse. She bounced back from the failed marriages, gaining handsome settlements two of the three times. She returned to drinking, but at least left the depression meds behind. He glanced at his watch. Scanning his vast bookcase, he calculated in which category he might place his new client. Topics in which he had spent countless hours researching included deciphering archetypal father figures and overcompensating obstacles. There was a seminal work on hypoanalysis and a classic in Games People Play, and one of his favorites, the well-known Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. He felt confident he would find just the right approach for her. Perhaps today would be about patience, not try to fix anything, simply a receptive ear. Sometimes it's good to nod, smile, and listen. Clients need two ears and a shoulder. That had become his trademark line, one he used frequently with patients. Good therapists, be they psychiatrists or psychologists, were always needed in a town of neurotic personalities. He glanced at the mirror to his right, seeing the clock on the opposite wall, 
where he could see what time it was without distracting his patients, a setup he learned from a former instructor. Two ears and a shoulder. Chapter 24. Shrink Wrap Arriving at Dr. Dursell's office early gave me a few moments to center myself. I think that's what my old yoga instructor used to call it. I called it clearing my head. After making nice with a receptionist and signing paperwork, I took a seat in the far corner of the quiet and elegantly appointed waiting room. Sipping from a bottle of designer water, I was able to slow myself down. Smooth jazz played overhead and erased tensions I brought in from the outside world. With eyes closed, a calm voice snapped me back, Detective Norelli. Opening my eyes, I hoped my look of surprise wasn't overly obvious. My mind said, Hello, handsome, as my lips said, Dr. Tissell. He extended a hand and waved me toward his office like a game show model. It played more charming than phony. Over the next several minutes, we exchanged generic pleasantries, all orchestrated to break the ice and ease tensions. It comfortably paved the way for what would become either a torturous 50-minute session of introspection or near hour of self-enlightenment. Having been in therapy before, I was painfully aware the first several minutes were less than comfortable and more than awkward. After all, moments earlier, we were complete strangers, and now I was to trust a stranger with my innermost thoughts. By the way, I do have one question before we begin. He lifted an eyebrow. I heard you're always booked as one of the heavy hitters in town, so how did I get in here so quickly? Angie gave me your name, said you were good people, and how she had been a friend of your family for years. I suppose it just felt right. And as I mentioned at the start, while I can't ordinarily take on new clients, I, I have recently lost two to personal conflicts. Shifting in my seat, I said, So you want to just jump right in? Is that what you want to do? I stared out the window before saying, That's exactly what my ex used to say. Every time we'd get into an argument. I mean, conflict. They were never arguments, just conflicts. <laughs> what bullshit. He followed my gaze out the window. Is that how you feel about this? Bullshit? I shifted my attention back to him and smiled. Mm, not really. Nervous tension, I guess. His shirt was crisp, sport coat, tailored. Bet it cost what I made last month. You're kind of persnickety, aren't you? He burped a chuckle. <laughs> I suppose. Glancing at his hands, his nails were perfectly trimmed. That word has always made me laugh. It's so old school. You'd prefer fastidious? His tanned face spread a perfect smile. I think the cut of a person's attire and how they groom tells a lot about what they think of themselves. True. I said, looking at my outfit. Not terribly fetching, is it? But functional, correct? Nodding, I checked my watch. Twelve down, thirty-eight to go. Uncrossing one leg, he crossed the other, shifting his weight. wonder if he's as uncomfortable as me. Let's, uh, let's start with the basics and go from there. He nodded. And, uh, in case you hadn't summed it up yet, he was a therapist. You're referring to your ex? Oh, right, yes. And you didn't like that? Is that a question or a statement? Right. It was a statement. I was putting him through school, working a full-time job, and taking care of a kid. He wanted to be a doctor, but didn't have the grades. Or the stamina, I suppose. Understood. 
Staring at the weave of the expensive tapestry on the floor, I said, I always called him a soft doctor. Soft? Meaning he didn't have what it took to be a full doctor. He kept a tiny smile at bay. No offense. None taken. Fortunately for me, I never sat on his couch. Unfortunately for others, <laughs> they did. Exercising a pair of dimples, he said, Nicely played. And to anticipate your next question, it made me feel... What's the word? Disappointed. Why? Because... While I hated funding his education, only to never benefit, at least I was able to rid myself of a psychopath. I glanced up from my lap to see his raised eyebrow. Really? Okay, maybe not as much a psychopath as he traveled a path of psychosis. Care to explain? Let's just say he put in enough hours to obtain the power to self-prescribe. Ah, uh, yes. That can be dangerous. I brushed invisible lint from my slacks. You bet especially with an addictive personality. Yours or his? Ouch! I apologize. Uh, what I meant was, did his self-medication prove to dull his anxiety or feed the anxiety you were feeling? Maybe both, actually. He was a narcissist, which took me a long time to learn, <laughs> even as long as we were married. When I finally figured it out, it helped me understand things better. My biggest lesson... That it wasn't my fault. His confirming smile added to my comfort. I just said that aloud, didn't I? <laughs> you did indeed. That's something. I've not admitted to anyone. <laughs> Maybe ever. Good. That's a big step. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And it felt good to say that. That's a very good observation. I see why Angie likes this guy. Here's the bottom line. I couldn't decide if I respected him because of his honesty or hated him because he was cruel. So I left him because of his honest cruelty. Chapter 25. Sharing Gladly. On the way to our next appointment, I shared with Stuart how my appointment went better than anticipated. In true form, he encouraged me with quiet support, just as I had expected and hoped. We also discussed Meredith's ex-husband as a possible suspect, wondering if he was likely to have had a motive. His name was Jonathan, with an extra H, like John, and an O at the end instead of an A. <laughs> Welcome to L.A. Thanks to one of Meredith's co-workers, their marriage and divorce lasted no longer than a magazine subscription. Evidently, his attention span was shorter than a seven-year-old's and wasn't aimed at other women. Given this discovery, she filed and he fled. Further confirmation came when I learned he couldn't have killed her, as he was getting married in San Francisco to his boyfriend on Saturday night, with the two of them on a honeymoon flight to Paris the next morning. With me driving, we were across town, up and over the 405, and pulling into the Getty Center parking lot in record time. I found a spot in front, placed my placard in the dash, and headed for the door. Okay, so you got us here faster. However, it's safe to say I lost a probably a month of my life in the process. He grinned, polishing his sunglasses before returning them to his breast pocket. The Getty Museum was an impressive architectural marvel, made of stone and glass with fountains and parks. The art on display was impressive and world-renowned. Passing through the doors, you knew you were in for a treat. We approached the front desk and showed our badges as I shared with the attendant our purpose for the visit. I could spend days in here, Stewart said, 
Reminds me of the Louvre, but less French. There you are, a voice came from behind. Turning, we faced a very attractive woman. In fact, she bore a striking resemblance to Meredith Johansson. I'm Sharon Gladstone, and you must be Detectives Norelli and Brown. We shared pleasantries, then followed her through an elaborate lobby, ascending a stone and glass staircase, before arriving in an office the size of my entire apartment. It was adorned with handsome furniture covered in lavish fabrics. Although I didn't know the first thing about what made some art fine, the art on her walls was impressive. I estimated all the furniture in my home cost less than her office desk. The added bonus was the view. In the distance, we could see several skylines of the L.A. Basin, Westwood and UCLA, Century City, and further south, Culver City. Off to the west were the seaside towns of Malibu, Pacific Palisades, and Santa Monica, and the vast blue Pacific. Stewart and I were actually gawking. Breathtaking, huh? Sharon said, giving us ample time to admire it all. Not too shabby, I said, trying not to appear like a hillbilly. Quite nice, Stuart echoed, taking out his pad and pen. Prior to arriving, we had decided to go with our usual. Only this time I would be the nice one, while he, the a-hole. We thought it might be a nice change from our performance at the Hollywood Mole. Besides, my gut about Sharon was every man likely drooled all over her. This would make for an interesting departure. Ms. Gladstone, we won't take much of your time. Stuart began pointing to chairs in front of her desk. May we? Certainly, she replied, waving to the chairs like a hand model. Can I offer you some coffee, espresso, wine, water? Nothing for me. Cold beer would be nice, I thought. Maybe a double espresso? She pushed a button on her desk before circling it to join us. More comfortable this way, she said with a sincere smile. Now, how may I help you, detectives? Miss Gladstone, could you please... Sorry to interrupt right out of the gate, but please, would you both call me Sharon? Sharon, could you please tell Detective Norelli and myself if you killed Meredith Johansson? What? The look on her face was priceless. What? Either she was as good of an actress as she was a fundraiser, or she didn't kill Meredith. Heavens no! she said, taking several moments to dissolve the frozen look of surprise from her face. I actually caught myself feeling blindsided by her authenticity. Oh, Meredith and I were close friends, very close. We were roomies at one time, for goodness sakes. I mean, I loved her like a sister. Are those actual tears? Sharon's assistant quietly entered the office placed a silver tray on the glass table next to me, then with a quick smile, disappeared. Sharon, I think what Detective Brown is trying to do, I began giving him a disappointed look, is to get the obvious question out of the way. Not to be rude, so we apologize. Oh, I understand, she said, taking a tissue from a silver box that resembled a cigarette case. Dabbing her perfect nose, she added, You're just doing your job, I understand. Stewart moved in. Actually, it's a pretty good, albeit frank, question which needs to be addressed, which we've done. Now, moving on, he said, scribbling something before flipping a page. How long were you two involved? He asked. What? As roommates, if that's all it was. <laughs> Go get him, Tiger. I'm not particularly comfortable with your insinuations, Detective Brown. But to answer your question... We shared a house. And boyfriends, I was half expecting her to slap him, but instead she blushed. 
then after a long, dramatic sigh, said, Only on rare occasions. I mean, it is Hollywood, after all. And we have quite the life to live, even if that means sharing more than purses and a pool. What the freak? Her attitude reversal gave me whiplash. Sharon, did you know, or do you know, a Bobby Shapiro? Licking her lips, her eyes shifted back and forth. Um, yes and no. Excuse me? I said, looking to Stuart. I'm confused. Yes, but does anyone really know Bobby? Can you elaborate? Bobby and Meredith were the it couple, and everyone knew it. And to your earlier inference, yes, uh, Bobby and Meredith and I were very close. Frankly, Bobby and I had a better relationship and understanding. Can you explain that further? We shared each other in a, how do I put this, a three-way relationship. I'm bisexual, she was bi-curious, and Bobby, well, he's just bipolar. Wow, sister. Is that true? Yes, to all the above. Meredith was being treated for depression. Ask her doctor. Bobby should have been treated for his condition. Ask anyone at his work. And I don't need treatment. Stuart and I looked at one another without expression. Personally, I think their neuroses is what brought them together. Uh, Sharon, where were you on Sunday night? Her eyes shot up and to the left. Where everyone was on Sunday night at the Oscars. It was fantastic. And your date? Ooh, Judd Lowenthal, the actor. Judd Lowenthal was the latest dead guy in Hollywood. Drop dead gorgeous, ripped body, killer smile, and seemed to be in nearly every other film of late. Good-looking guy, I interjected with a coy smile. Right? And ridiculously talented. As an actor, of course, she winked. I'm sure, Ms. Gladstone, Stewart said, returning to her title on purpose. And needless to say, if we were to ask him the same, he could confirm this? Absolutely. In fact, let me get you his number. She popped up and circled her desk. I would ordinarily send you to his manager or agent, but since this is a police matter, I'm sure he'll be happy to cooperate. After several scrolls through her phone, she scribbled on a notepad and handed it to me. An interesting move, given it was Stuart who asked. She winked at me again. You got something in your eye or something to say? No, just another question or two, and we will be on our way, Stuart said, flipping a page in his pad. Were you aware of... Sorry for interrupting Detective Brown, but wasn't her death ruled a suicide? I mean, that's what I heard on the news anyway. That is the preliminary assumption, but as you can imagine, we have to examine her case from every angle. Smiling for the first time, he said, Things are not often what they seem. Indeed, she practically sneered. Proceed. Were you aware she had been depressed lately? Anything about her behavior of late confirmed that suspicion? Smoothing her skirt, she didn't answer right away. Uh, well, while she did have a stressful job, one she loved more than anything else, I don't know I would say that she was suicidal. I mean, we had talked, you know, girl talk, about how this business and this town can get to you. It has its own way of wearing one down. Um, she also shared with me how her father's recent passing had a significant impact on her. Frankly, it may be a better question for a therapist. 
Stuart stopped scribbling and looked up. And who might that be? A roll of her eye said, everyone knows that. Same one we all use. Therapist to the stars, Dr. Darius Tercell. Thank you for listening to the audiobook version of my thriller, The Poser, starring rookie detective Pat Norelli. I hope you enjoy the first 25 chapters, and I hope you'll join me next Tuesday for another edition of The Thriller Zone Bonus Podcast, where you'll hear chapters 26 to 50. A quick programming note. Please join me this Friday the 13th when my special guest will be Megan Collins, author of Behind the Red Door, The Winter Sister, and her latest and soon-to-be-released The Family Plot. In fact, it's coming next week. Again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time as we get in the Thriller Zone.